I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars, skags. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels I wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better rhyming scheme. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from a lime bean. I wish that I could spread my wings. I wish that I had seven limbs. That way I'd hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dímelo, dímelo. At least I kind of understand it. Wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit and get so large I could play pool with the planets. Yeah. I wish I was an astronaut. I wish I knew more classic rock. <laughs> Focused on myself. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like. I wish, I wish. Hello, Pats and Kittens, and welcome to another episode of The Debrief. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray, and today we are talking about what I think was a pretty rip-roaring episode, where we hosted one of the favorite, most popular, most, I think, kind of prolific and successful voices in online left media, the one and only Crystal Ball, and I wanted to have her on to talk about horse race in 2024 because I know it's a topic that a lot of people feel like is a little superficial and don't want to follow as closely. And I completely respect that and we try to get a mix of things going on over here. But I felt like she is one of the few people who doesn't have any of those reservations about uh, overindulging in that area. But we ended up actually having more of a conversation than I anticipated about kind of the future of the left within the Democratic Party, the value of third party runs and the particulars of a potential Marianne Williamson presidency. So I'm very eager to hear what you all thought about that and have to say. So let's get to it. Kyle, you're up. What's on your mind? Yes. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you Good, doing? good. I, so I'm a, recovering republican from northwest indiana okay okay and, welcome kyle yeah and you are you are my anchor to the left and you would not believe Aww. how many i don't know what you guys normie democrats these are people uh, that these were obama people that mm-hmm. um that are that are not as comfortable with biden as obama until just recently mm-hmm. and i i guess um i i i respect the work you guys do so much but i guess just being in indiana i'm an incrementalist mm. and and i the the win and and the the um the energy and the motivation from the even just the left and and something as simple as a 10 or 20,000 dollar 
student loan forgiveness. Mm-hmm. I, I I agree. How is this not a win for incrementalism? I guess, I guess at the end of the day, that's that's my question. Because when we talk about overhauling big structural revolutionary change, man, I lived through the Obama years. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I I lived through the McCain-Feingold years. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm year eight. I'm thirty seven. Mm-hmm. And it, I don't see any wholesale revolution happening. I, I just don't. Whether and 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 that seems to be the answer when it comes to the practical. When you guys talk about practical, you know, I, I guess I'm. I guess my question at the end of the day, and I'll let other people talk. How is this not a win for incrementalism? So what do we mean by a win for incremental, incrementalism? Do you mean it's proof that we should be aiming for incrementalism or happy yeah. about it? I Yeah, as opposed to a little bit of something, as opposed to a lot of bit of nothing. Um, well, I think the, the argument against incrementalism is that if you pursue it as a strategy, you don't get what we just got, which is incremental change. So to get even the $10,000 of debt cancellation – required Bernie to ask for full debt cancellation and also for a larger, you know, a coalition of not quite Bernie radicals, but other leftists to be asking for a $50,000 pseudo loan cancellation. And major political pressure on the president who did not want to do it. Right. But I mean, I think I agree with Crystal to the extent that she said without Bernie setting the bar in the context of the 2020 election, Biden would never have even had $10,000 of student debt cancellation as part of his plan. And if you were to pursue an incremental strategy, if Bernie were to have pursued 10000 or not asking for any cancellation but saying, oh, we should just cap interest rates or some other kinds of reform, then we would have gotten even less. So if anything, I think this is a win for asking for what is necessary, not what you would settle for. No? And, and, I, and, I, and if it's a negotiating tactic – I get it, Brianna. But just like I said, from the mid in, in terms of and working in local and, and state government, mm-hmm. the practical application of a wholesale revolution of like the healthcare system. When I remember how disastrous the website rollout was. Mm-hmm. OK. Um, and when we're talking about a fifth of the economy, when we're talking, you're, you're you had a great conversation. I so much respect your the the conversation you had a couple months ago with uh, Esperanza mm-hmm. and uh, what's her name Kim, Kim etc. Yeah, the the when it when it came to brass tacks and you were the one pushing it, Brianna. You you said now when it when it comes to a wholesale overhaul, when when who really does who is the arbiter of the First Amendment rights, except I guess I'm just a. I, I'm I'm very skeptical of what is possible when I hear the solution to the question of how does this practically happen is well we need a wholesale revolution, and 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 so that that's where the rubber meets the road and the practicality with the ideology versus I just just in my short little life and and in the 15 years in politics I've paid attention. I, 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 I don't see it happening. I just don't. And, and, and that's where I'm at. Um, and, and so that's why I'm, I've been an incrementalist this whole time, just arguing, yeah, I would have rather have a public option than nothing. Um, but you know, I I guess, I guess I'm just happy with what we can get. So what you're, what the argument you're making 
is about how you should feel about incremental progress, not about the strategy and whether incrementalism as a strategy is effective, right? Because quite plainly, incrementalism as a strategy is not effective. Incrementalism did not get you $10,000 of debt cancellation. It absolutely just did not. Now, if you think that you're an incrementalist because you are happy to settle for incremental change, I think that's fine, but I wouldn't describe that as being an incrementalist. I would That has something to do with, you know, how, you know, you're just kind of your emotional orientation. So a lot of people were really happy to get $10,000 because it's meaningful. One third of people, you know, had their entire debt obligation wiped out. You know, there's also part of the, the, you know, uh, the rule change that's going to help you with interest rates. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say it's nothing. I don't think that's honest. At the same time, it's only because there are those of us who are willing to ask for the whole shebang. You will continue to push for the whole shebang not being uh, incrementalist, that you have this at all. So I I just don't think you should describe yourself. What you're describing is not being an incrementalist. You have an approach, that a feeling about this that a lot of people share, which is, okay, this was a good thing. We should celebrate the win. Now let's keep pushing. Brandon, not only that, it's the first time I've been okay and not embarrassed to be on the left in my community (laughs) since the election. Well, honestly, since checks and accounts and shots in arms, frankly. I mean, that, mm. that was, that was, and, and you're right. Mm. And then I'll let other people talk, but that was what my expectations were of this mm-hmm. president. Maybe I'm not expecting enough. Mm. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm probably not. And that goes to cynicism, but if I, I, I push back, you guys say that all the time. I want to push back. <laughs> I'm going to politely push back on the argument that Biden got elected for for um, promising X, Y, and Z. And yes, student loan cancellation was one of them. But I would argue that at least the folks, and very many of them are Republicans in my district that voted for Biden, just that couldn't do the Trump thing again. This is in Indiana, okay? Um, And it was shots in arms, checks in accounts, and a return to normalcy. Mm -hmm. That's a very, very, very low bar. And so- when he accomplished that in his first month, I didn't expect anything else. So for me to get 20 grand in student loan forgiveness is um, it, maybe what I'm verbalizing right now is, is, is my low expectations of, of what the federal government can provide. Yeah, I, but yeah, but, I think a lot of people share that. And I think that's, that's okay, but you just gotta, I need to, I need, I want to know Kyle that you are, you hearing me, or I want to know what, like, are you, does it, does it resonate with you? The idea that you would not have this happiness, but for people who are asking for more than what you got. Um, it's a very poignant question. It's a yeah. very poignant question because the same people that the same people that pushed to get this mm-hmm. in your argument, Brianna, mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. the same people that I would be very hesitant to show up to the party or political revolution with, i.e. the Esperanzas, i.e. the people that want to punch, called you anti-Semitic for not wanting to punch a Nazi, which well, would have, well, that sort now. of thing. Like, well, so Kyle, those are the people that I would have to show up to but, the but, overall revolution but no, with. Kyle, wait a minute, stop. You, you, there's a lot of space between, I'm not talking about anybody's revolution. There are activists and groups like the Debt Collective, Asher Taylor, People like Sparky Abraham, who have been fighting for years as consumer protection attorneys and 
um, you know, other left activists who have been pushing this issue for a very long time, having rallies, meeting with legislatures, you know, organizing around this stuff. So are you saying that you, you know, these are not, you know, this has nothing to do with Esperanza, who I don't know if she even cares about student debt. I've never had a conversation with her about student debt. I don't know if that's her issue. I don't know anything about her. No, but it goes to judgment. It goes to judgment. That's your lawyer thing. That's what it's. And and that's really what I wanted to verbalize. But wait a minute, Kyle. I don't understand what Esperanza has to do with anything when it comes to student debt. There are people, the whole point, Kyle, of coalition building is that if you want something, you have to be willing to stand with people who share your cause and fight with them and not want to kick them, not want to give up on something that is meaningful to you and that you need for your life simply because that other person has some belief or characteristic that you don't, you don't personally recommend. The day that the debt collector starts asking you to fight for something you don't believe in, as I think a day that you're perfectly justified in walking away from it, if that's really so objectionable to you. But there are discrete issue organizations of, of a left nature that are fighting for any number of things that I think you should absolutely be proud to show up with and fight for, especially because without those advocates, you wouldn't be willing, able in this moment to say for the first time since Biden's been elected that you're proud to be a part of the left, right? That is totally right and fair. And and I will and I it, it goes back to the win. The last win I felt like this was was kind of with the healthcare, even though I mean, this is back in Obama. This is 10 years ago. Like I was a lot younger. (laughs) A lot's happened in 10 since the last real kind of big thing to feel good about. And there wasn't even a public option. And the rollout was a disaster. So that was my entrance to a left. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. and, 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 And so when I hear... And you had a great and, and why I started listening to you, Brianna, was you actually sat down and talked to Favreau, who one of the the bros, the, you know, the pod bros guys mm-hmm. who and but had a very and and, and because I his concern was the practicality, the implementation, mm-hmm. right, of of what universal health insurance would look like. Mm-hmm. And the answer is always wholesale revolutionary revolutionary change in the same way it wasn't has absolutely nothing to do with the cultural aspects of what the the esperanza conversation was it has to do with the first the first amendment implications of such and who are the people that are the arbiters of what is speech and what is not and i'm just it's the hardest thing for me to be so diametrically opposed to the people that I would have to show up to the revolution with in order to overhaul the healthcare system and in order to overhaul the um, social media giants that we all can agree are problematic. And I just, the, the, the sort of wholesale revolution that we talk about one, I just, I don't feel is feasible. And two, um, Kyle, I don't, let, I, I don't, if I, you don't want to participate in anybody's revolution, there's no gun to your head. You don't have to. Fair enough. But the the conversation with John Favreau, you're right. He he articulated what he believed to be an implausibility about Medicare for all, and he was a fan, I believe, if I'm recalling correctly. This is this was on the Bernie Sanders podcast for the a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. And he liked, I believe, at the time Kamala Harris's health care plan, which I don't remember the details of, but was shite. <laughs> And so when I asked him why, he, he, he did this kind of um, 
sleight of hand where he said, well, Kamala's basically doing Medicare for all, but also Bernie's Medicare for all is implausible. I'm like, okay, well, let me explain to you how Bernie's Medicare for all will go into effect. It's, uh, I believe it's the first year, I might get the order of this wrong, but the first year they basically lower the Medicare, Medicare age down to 55. The following, uh, and also is everybody under 18 and, 50, and everybody over 55 for the first year. And then you just lower it by like 10 years again and lower it 10 years again and lower it the 10 years again. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the four years, everybody is covered by the existing Medicare program. And there's some other like funding stuff and, you know, tax implications that go along with it. But it's not like you have to rebuild anything. The whole beauty of Medicare for all is that we already have a functioning Medicare system that many people are very appreciative of and is a very popular program despite its flaws. And Bernie For also sure. improved the ex- existing system by adding dental, vision, and hearing, uh, 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 pharmaceutical negotiation, price negotiation, some other things as well. And I, when you say it like that, and I think you're right, sometimes Bernie, sometimes the messaging is too abstract. I think the revolution is good, but I think that that messaging is not always necessary to get when, into Yeah, it's just when you try to nail down. Nailed down on the practicality, it's always, well, we need a wholesale revolutionary change. Well, And, and just again, working ca- in county government, I just know how difficult even minor, minor changes to people that have done the same thing for 30 years are. Well, well, Kyle, I will put to you that getting Joe Biden to admit that he can, and Trump, by the way, to admit that they can just write checks to Americans if they really wanted to. Getting them, wait a minute, getting them to admit that they can cancel student debt if they wanted to, getting them to admit that they can put a moratorium on student debt for years and there's no adverse consequences the way they hand ring about, that is part of a revolution and a change in the American mindset, whether you like it or not, whether you frame it that way or not. Because I like right, it that much because it's, it's so much easier for me as a talking point, mm-hmm. newly on the left, to say, to my friends, Republican friends, tax cuts. You're in our 30s, and remember we got the Bush tax cuts in our 20s. And how much? How, how much of that did you pocket? I know exactly. Like the 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 stimulus checks got me to the middle class. They 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 they, they, they allowed me the time to. Uh, it was um what you just articulated, and <laughs> believe it or not, what. Joe Biden was able to do um, got me to the middle. It was an activist federal government that got me to the middle class. So I, how could I be anything other than open to. Yeah. And, and but, but, but the only point I'm trying to make about that though, Kyle, is that there are, you know, what is the saying? There are days where there are, there are years when no, nothing revolutionary happens. And then there are minutes where so much change happens. And what I'm putting to you is that if there is some conception of revolutionary change that doesn't gel with your life experience because of your work in city government and stuff, that is fine. But I would put to you that we are experiencing dramatic shifts in the public public's understanding of what the government is capable of, capable of that is, in fact, a precedent for the kind of revolutionary moment that we're looking for. And whether or not you frame it that way is completely up to you, and I completely accept that that framing is not going to be useful to everyone. But you are I, – I put to you that you are not an incrementalist. You are happy with something that was won after people who are absolutely not incrementalists really fought hard and that you should support in whatever way you can and are comfortable with those big shot, big swing 
effort because that's exactly what got you the incremental change that you're enjoying right now. Not, not aiming. You got to aim for the moon and land among the stars or whatever the saying is. Well, and I appreciate your work because I was probably fighting against you for the first one third of it. (laughs) No harm, no foul, Kyle. (laughs) um, And I, I I really, Brianna, I really appreciate, like I said, you're my, you're my anchor to the left. And um, I I am, I'm literally, I just transferred you're doing things important. I was just, I'm, I'm a government drone accounts payable manager and I just switched over to a 911 operator position strictly because I needed to be doing something more important as a 37 year old. And like, you were a big part of that. Like what the hell am I doing? So um, anyway, I will, I will leave it at that and um, just, just keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, Kyle. I really appreciate that. It's very humbling. And I, I appreciate your willingness to go back and forth with me here today. All right. Keep the faith. Take care. See ya. David, what's on your mind today? Hey, hey Bree, can you hear me? I can, loud and clear. What you think hey. about this evening? So uh, I was wondering um, if if you ever got a chance to look into Represent Us at all. Uh, that's the organization they're trying to get money out of politics. Oh, right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, um, so... I, I was actually wondering, I, I know this is a little unorthodox, but would you be willing to put on this 12-minute video? Um, and, and I just wanted to see your reaction to it. It's like extremely appropriate to, to what we keep talking about. And it, it you know, basically they, they talk about the Princeton study, which showed that, you know, average Americans has a, have a non statistically mm-hmm. significant impact on on policy mm-hmm. right um and then it goes into this strategy to gather local wins to result in 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 federal change well, um i'm a little reluctant this especially this early in the podcast to, when there's so many people in the queue to put a 12 minute video on but can you put it in the in the comments so that everybody can find it Sure. And if if there's time at the end, I can play it at the end of the, of well, the episode if that works. Um, here, um, I'll, I'll put it in the chat. Um, but so they've gathered. Um, so they they got ranked choice voting in Hawaii um, this year. Mm-hmm. Um, they um, they. They've racked up, I think it's uh, over 100 wins over their lifetime. Um, And that's everywhere from, you know, local passing of anti-corruption acts um, to, um, you know, ranked choice voting getting passed in states like Michigan or not Michigan, uh, Maine, Mm -hmm. Maine and Hawaii. And um, um. I just think so. Jennifer Lawrence is their current spokeswoman. So, oh, you know, she, she was in the um, um, Silver Linings Playbook. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> I was going to say don't look up. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, uh, also, uh, Trevor Potter, um, who was the lawyer that Stephen Colbert had on when he did his um, when he made his. Uh, super PAC uh, to teach everybody about Citizens United and all that. Mm-hmm. If you remember that. Mm-hmm. So Trevor Potter's on their board. 
um, uh, they have um, uh, what was the the guy in the nineties, the lobbyist who was like uh, uh, D, uh, Abram Abramoff. Is that the one? I'm not. I'm not sure. Um. He, he basically he was a lobbyist. He um, he recruited a Democrat to the Republic Republican Party to get to get them control of the Senate in the nineties. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure, but I, I mean, look, I take your point about the organization, and I'm definitely happy to look into it. But I, I do want to make sure, you know, do you have any questions or anything? Well, you know, um, I want to make sure this this chat space because sure. you know, we move along and kind of get you know people have questions sure, or thoughts or feelings, kind of voice them, but kind of move on and not make this quite. You know, people can go and look at the link if they want. You know, right. So basically, people keep talking about the forward party, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, completely corporate funded. Uh, you know, um, I have zero confidence or faith in anything good coming out of that. Um, um, If so, I've shown, I've shown this video to, I don't know, uh, maybe 50 different people. Um, You know, I used to work in a nuclear power plant Mm. in New York. Mm -hmm. Our union shop was uh, at least half like Republican. And I mean, you know, MAGA hats and everything. Um, and, uh, you know, I've never gotten a negative reaction to this video. So the, the concept of our government works for big, big corporations and the wealthy and not for anyone else. I haven't found a single person who like disagrees with that, uh, uh, which I don't know is pretty amazing to be that because people don't agree on much right yeah no i think you're totally right it was a i just in my last writer about this so i'm completely on board i reference the Princeton study frequently and i think that that is definitely a strong message to keep hitting so definitely put the video in chat and people should definitely take a look at it and share it around to things well what i was wondering is so if they could run people under their single issue campaign. In other words, if if they had candidates just step up and say, uh, so they, they have model legislation called the Anti-Corruption Act, which uh, overhauls ethics, puts uh, sub, you know, public uh, funding of elections. Um, um, it, there, there's more information about it on the website, but... Um, if you had candidates who, you know, the the central plank of their platform was just an, an anti-corruption act legislation. Yeah, no, I, I gotcha. I think like, I think that's a great idea, but I don't really know much about this organization, and I, you know, I can't really weigh in on that. Do I think that sure. anti-corruption is a really strong way? to build your campaign around. I 100% agree. I think that Bernie did that in 2016 more so than in 2020, and that's why it was a stronger campaign. Trump obviously talked a lot about draining the swamp, so I I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I just, I'm wondering why, um, I mean, you you have candidates 
who um, who are publicly funded are absolutely against uh, corporate money, but I haven't seen anyone really adopt it as their. Yeah, I look, look, yeah. David. I, I agree. I don't know why All that right. is. I think it's really frustrating. Um, I don't know what to tell you though, buddy. <laughs> like, I, I just, I, I completely agree, uh, and it's very frustrating. I think we don't see that more often because people are corrupt. That's the that's the story, you know. Unfortunately, uh, uh, most people are not anti-corruption candidates. You get people who signal like Donald Trump, but people nobody's willing to forgo corporate money. And I don't know if you heard me, you know, grill Andrew Yang on this on Rising, but he is not I willing did. to either. So right. unfortunately, this is just the world that we live in. But I completely I agree that you've identified the source of a lot of the issues. Well, um, it's just this organization has has lots of like popular people in it. They have celebrities do some of their videos. They did this hilarious ad campaign uh, called Honest Gil Fulbright, where they had this guy do fake ads as a yeah. honest politician. Who So he'd come on and he'd basically be like, I'm running for Senate and I'm going to take donor money and screw you over and I'm going to do it at every yeah. opportunity. Look, and look, look, David, they, I, I, I really take your point, but right. I, I really, I got to move on. I'm, I'm sorry. I've only taken two callers and I've been on for half an hour, but look, thank you. Thank you. And people know where they find, can find the video. And, and it's, it sounds like it's a great organization. You've, you've been a great <laughs> spokesperson for it today. All right. Take care. Keep the faith, David. Yep. All right, William, what's on your mind? Hey, can you hear me? I can, loud and clear. What's on your mind this evening? Breaking point, so I thought I'd check out the uh, the episode today. And uh, I guess, you know, Crystal said something interesting um, with Marianne. Lots of things, I hope. <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> yeah. for sure, for sure. But, you know, with Marianne, she mentioned, you know, she, you know, I think she, she, she was very favorable to her being a, a challenger to Biden. Um mm-hmm. But also, you know, she mentioned, like, her spiritual work. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was wondering what you thought about that. Because personally, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it is very corny. And sometimes can be very, very corny. On the other hand, you know, I get that, you know, uh, religion does play a big role in a lot of people's lives. And so maybe, you know, that kind of aspect of her politics can kind of strike a chord with some people but you know you didn't really comment about it too much in the episode i was so i was wondering what you well, thought, thought about I, that i thought i said that i actually quite like it and that i think that her approach i think we put a clip from her gravel video um her recent gravel gang video i think it's compelling i mean i mean let me ask you this i mean i'm not trying to get into your personal business but were you so off put by joe biden talking about healing the soul of the nation that you didn't vote for him well, um, I actually, uh, I, I was too young to vote in the election in, uh, okay. in 2020. Um, but, but how I do guess, you feel about that rhetoric as compared to, I mean, like, again, I, I do feel, I, I do feel the same way. Like I feel, you know, I, I, I do feel that it's very vague and, you know, very corny. Like I, I don't, you know, I don't really feel like, but, but I asked a slightly different question though. Would it prevent you from voting for him to, you know, for all the reasons that people voted for Biden, if they didn't like him to stop Trump or whatever, if there were a candidate 
that was a the Democratic Party candidate that used that language and you thought there were other reasons to vote for them, would it pro- prohibit you from doing so? No, I don't I don't think so. Um, I don't think so. I guess I just the reason I wanted to ask about it is because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I I guess I must have missed that part of, you know, I, I guess I must have missed that part of the episode where you commented on it. But, um, you know, I, I guess I was just, you know, wondering, like, you know, like, because, you know, it. In politics, you know, when when people are making their decisions, you know, honestly, um, you know, policy, uh, of course, is not is a huge is a huge factor, but it's not the only thing that people vote on. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, appearance and how you come off is is a big deal. So you know, I, I guess as you know, it's just interesting to see. Like, it would be interesting to you know find out like what kind of her like how her message kind of resonates with people. Um, you know, my, my, the reason I asked what I asked you is that my concern is that people thinking that other people thinking Marianne Williamson is corny will prevent them from supporting Marianne Williamson. And that is a slippery slope. Like that is a circular, not useful way to go about doing politics. It's the same thing that happened to Bernie in 2016. People saying that he couldn't possibly be serious was his biggest hurdle in that race until there was enough momentum mm-hmm. and at which point it was kind of too late. So if you think that Marianne Williamson is not a good candidate for many reasons, including her rhetoric, then I think it's fine to say that and not support her. But if you are concerned that somebody else will be concerned about what she sounds like and therefore have hesitation or express hesitation for that reason, I think that that is not especially useful. Do, do you get the difference? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, I don't think she's not being serious. Like, I, I never I never got the sense from Bernie that he wasn't being serious. Um, like, obviously, you know, they're both very serious and, and they both believe, you know, what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like, and of course, it would not pre- prevent, you know, it would not prevent me from voting for those people. Like, I, mm-hmm. I support, you know, most of Marianne Williamson's message. Um you know, I, I don't agree with her on a hundred percent of things, but I, I you know, I do kind of like the way she's gone. Um, you know, especially leaning into what what kind of the last caller was talking about. You know, mm-hmm. about corruption and the influence of money in politics. I guess I just I'm trying to figure out how to put this. I guess sometimes um, some people can like some people can view certain rhetoric and see like that's that it might be kind of kind of weird and somewhat preachy and i feel like you know if you know it would not prevent me from voting for that person but would i would still i would i would still vote for that person um but you know I, i guess maybe if it you know, if, if it wasn't really resonating with a lot of people, maybe, you know. Well, look, I, I think that Marianne Williamson is a best-selling author with like 12. I'm making up a number, but it's a lot of books. Yeah. Who has been very popular, who was at one time described as Oprah's spiritual advisor. And when my experience, when I've been out and about with her, she gets recognized a heck of a lot by, you know, people in her, her kind of her contemporaries, but also young people who are the children of people who are contemporaries. Who say, oh my gosh, I love you. My mother loved her books. 
my the what I'm resisting right now is this idea that because she doesn't present in a hyper traditional and I got to say I'm sorry, frankly, kind of masculine elite. I went to law school. I'm a typical politician. I was a senator, whatever way that she is considered to be is you know her spirituality is considered to be flake spirituality. If if Lauren Bulbert says there's no separation between between church and state, I mean we think that's <laughs> crazy for different yeah. ways. But politicians say all kinds of crazy things. They sit around saying God's rooting for America, like that's how the Bible works. They say all kinds of nutty stuff, and we accept that as normal. But Marianne Williamson says we are a divided society and we need to find our spiritual roots and learn to be warm and together as a community. And suddenly that's some kind of witchcraft, like she's drawn a pentagram on the Oval Office floor. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, look, I completely appreciate that that kind of messaging is not going to resonate with everybody. But let's not pretend that she doesn't have a demonstrated record of having broader appeal than most people in this space because she has existed in this world as a spiritual advisor. And there's obviously an appetite for that. Moreover... <laughs> She was the most Googled person after that first debate or second debate or whatever it was, because I think that people have a much higher tolerance for novelty than the political class thinks they do. And that's exactly how we got Donald Trump and, frankly, how we got Barack Obama, for better or for worse, you know? But, look, I, I, I could be wrong, but I, my personal feeling is if you agree with her substantive politics, which I know many people don't, I'm not telling anybody what to think, then I wouldn't think of spirituality as a um obstacle and my experience is that folks who once dismissed marion williamson once they've gotten to know her over the years now frequently say things like i wish i had taken her more seriously i didn't realize she was this serious of a person all i saw was the voodoo hoodoo stuff and i i i, I misjudged okay and i think if she's more on the public sphere you know on the national stage that's only gonna become more common yeah absolutely that's why i wanted to ask you know you're obviously so you know who spent time with her and know the a lot about more about her than I do. So, you know, I wanted to ask and you gave a good answer. And there's one more thing I wanted to ask about kind of, well, off kind of off topic, but you know, there was, you know, I, I just wondered about what happened to this person because he hasn't really, you know, been politically active in a while. And I was kind of interested in what he had to say. Um, Justin Jackson, uh, mm -hmm. I know he just got signed with the uh, Detroit lions. He's still oh, yeah. playing. Um, but he hasn't really, he hasn't posted to his YouTube channel in about a year. He hasn't like, he hasn't posted on Twitter in about a year. Like, I, like, I don't know if you know or not, but like, you know, what's going on with him or if there's anything that happened or. Not that I know of. I remember the last time I reached out to him to be a guest, he said, you know, that he was busy, that the internet stuff took up a lot of time and he was feeling stretched kind of thin. So I'm not sure that it's anything more than that. I mean, he is like a professional athlete so I, I i don't know if it's just like that life got in the way but it's, i i'm not aware of anything specific um but maybe it's it has been a while and i do you know miss him so maybe i'll maybe i'll reach out and check in and see if everything's going well but it's nice to hear that he's a uh, playing in the midwest as a mid as a midwestern gal yeah he had, a, he had a he had a he had a he had a pretty good uh he had a pretty decent season last year so hopefully he can uh keep that up um yeah nice. Um, and, uh, one more thing I wanted to ask you about, um, I know, you know, international politics is not necessarily your area of expertise, but there was a, uh, the new constitution in Chile, which was widely described as being kind of leftist, um, was pretty profoundly, uh, rejected, um, by voters, like, 
you know, I, I don't know too much about it, but I kind of saw it in the news and I, I was kind of interested to, you know, like hear what, what, what you thought about it and kind of what, you know, how, yeah, what... I'm, I'm afraid I haven't followed that at all, but uh, yeah. maybe I'll look into having someone who can talk about it, but I'm, I'm a, I'm a black box on that one. All right. Yeah. That's well, thanks for, uh, yeah, thanks for taking my call. And, you know, I'll just say one more thing. You know, I, I, uh, I, I follow a lot of people with a lot of different political ideologies. And, you know, when it comes to a lot of, you know, leftists, I feel like a lot of them, um, I won't name names, are kind of preaching to the choir. But you, I think, really make an effort to branch out and kind of make your message very appealing. So, yeah, I think just keep it up and uh, keep doing what you're doing. Thanks, William. I appreciate that. Thank you for calling in. No problem. All right. Isaiah, you're up next, and I am going to be hopping around today, um, so look alive if you're in the back of the queue. All right, Isaiah, unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. Is the app being buggy? I see some of you in the comments. Yes, oh, by the way, Jim Briney was... has been on the show. I saw someone say that I should have her as a guest, but I would love to have her back. What's on your mind, Isaiah? Hi. Um, uh, first of all, it's nice to talk to you. I've never like hopped in one of these calls before. Um, oh, welcome. I'm yeah, I'm a first gen student at UNC, celebrating getting my loans canceled, Woo-hoo! and yeah, very ex- very excited about that. But so uh, the question that I wanted to ask you is somebody that's as somebody that's interested in communications broadly in politics. How did you arrive at the style which like you? Like, how are you able to communicate, like, as effectively as you are? Like, what do you attribute that to? And, like, how do you think you developed that sort of style? Um, I, I don't, I don't know exactly. <laughs> I mean, I just think, you know, I think I, I'm interested in being understood. And I think that should be the point of all communication in all aspects of your life. And I think, you you know, I spent a lot of years on like Twitter and reading articles and and kind of being a passive observer of political life. And I started writing because it seemed to me that there were kind of obvious points that weren't being made. And I was frustrated by the ways in which the movements that I was ostensibly a part of were being, in my view, mischaracterized by the media. And so I tried to make myself understood in a way that apparently my political allies had not been understood or had been intentionally misunderstood by the people that control the broader narratives. And as I, as you engage with people, you get certain kinds of pushback, you get feedback, you figure out what's effective and what's not, and you fail a lot and you fight a lot. And eventually you become sensitive, I think, to what are kind of triggers in conversation and we become more familiar with the kinds of things that motivate people and why, and you're able to navigate things a bit more easily than you might have been before. But it's, it's a process. Like when I, I went to Cleveland over the weekend, I got back this morning and I took a, you know, like a lift home from the airport and I'm talking to this guy <clears throat> And my family was like, why do you talk to people? And I'm like, this is why. This is, this, I didn't tell them the story to complain. I told them because this was very useful to me. We get to talking. I don't know how it comes up, but 
he started talking about his kids and how his daughter, you know, she's 16 and she just loves to work and she's such a hard worker and she works at, uh, I think it was KSC and how he doesn't believe in college, you know, she doesn't want to go to college and she doesn't need to because she works very hard. And I was like, yeah, great. Like, I'm, I'm glad that you're proud of her. I'm glad that she's able to support herself. That's great. And then somehow it became a conversation about, you know, college, you know, not, I said something, I was testing the waters, right? I'm like, okay, so here's someone who was, the media is telling me doesn't care about student debt cancellation because it's an elitist thing. And he also is very proud of the good, hard-won working-class money that his daughter is able to earn. Can I have a conversation with this man about student debt cancellation and the value in some ways but not other ways of college without actually being an elitist? This was the, like, this was my personal, I was like, okay, all right, let's talk about it. I said, yeah, it's a real, it's a, you know, it's a real shame. College isn't actually a good bet for a lot of people these days because it's so expensive. There are some benefits in terms of having higher wages if you go to college, but unfortunately the debt means that a lot of people, depending on what college you go to, it doesn't actually shake out very well, especially given the job market pays very low for a lot of college required jobs. So, you know, it's, it's a difficult choice to make, et cetera. He says, Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Vocational schools are better. I say vocational schools are great. My mom, who's from Cleveland, went to Jane Addams, a vocational high school right here in the city. However, it's also true that a lot of people have debt from the vocational school. So it's, I think it's really good to support the student debt cancellation program exactly mm. because so many people have debt from vocational schools. Okay, yes. <laughs> I exercised a little bit of patience and let him say the thing about vocational schools. And I was like, 100%, this is my end. This is my end. I'm not going to sit here and say anything that would, I think, come off as me having any kind of judgments about the choices that he and his family have made. Now, the conversation went on, and it turns out that he supports Trump, that he very frustrated the Democratic Party. And I was like, yeah, I didn't right. vote for Biden. I also am frustrated for all of those reasons. And he says, well, Trump said he was going to do this and that other. And I was like, yeah, Trump said things that I would agree with in principle if I thought he was going to do them. And I wish that he had. Truly, I, I was not rooting against Donald Trump draining the swamp or any of those things. I wish he had done it. Unfortunately, he didn't, and here are some examples of why. And also, Joe Biden has not drained the swamp, and here are some examples why. He's like, yeah, yeah, that's true. I wish there were more. And, and so we were able to have this conversation. I'm not going to say it was a perfect conversation, <laughs> but it's, it's, there's no other way for me, there's no other way to know what works and what doesn't work than by talking to human beings. That's it. And so my biggest, you know, you're asking me how, how do I come to the way I come – talking to lots of different kinds of human beings. That's it. Okay. How would they come? And you people, you guys on the um, call-in app are great. Going to family reunions and talking to people is great. You know, being in elite spaces and talking to people is useful. Being all over the place. You know, having guests on the show who are, you know, experts in their field and labor organizers and writers and you know, environmental experts and all of that, all of it contributes to an evolving understanding of what works. Well, so I think that the example that you gave with you talking to someone leads well into the second question that I wanted to ask, um, which is like something I've been curious about is like the utility of like me as someone that is not like in the media space, that is not in political office, that is not like directly involved in that sort of realm. Like the utility of me like during interpersonal conversations, trying to change people's minds. Like, I don't, I'm not entirely sure if that's like a useful 
strategy for yeah. like like the average American citizen. And I was wondering like what you thought about that. Like like yeah. is there any use in like me trying to convince anyone of anything or I think well I think it's different for people who are in your life life versus people who are kind of passing through. Like I wasn't I, I wasn't exactly like for example I wasn't going to I wasn't trying to convince this this no, sure, guy yeah, in Cleveland yeah. of anything in my like 40 minutes I had with him in the car. I I was always just trying to find out about him more than tell him any you know you know push him in one direction or the other. My goal actually I was articulating it in my brain as I was I was like rear, you know I was assessing okay do I want to get into this how light am I going to try to keep this, you know, we're in this long car ride, sort of like, how long is this going to go? What do I have the stamina for? And I said to myself, okay, I'm going to change the stakes to make this okay. I'm going to say the stakes are if to see if we can have a little rapport because we agree on the brokenness of the system and I'm not going to say anything unfair about Trump. There are fair things to say, but I'm not going to say anything unfair. Moreover, I'm going to, after a, I'm not going to push it, but after 20 minutes or so bring up the fact that my solution to all the problems that we agreed on was to go with someone like Bernie Sanders and to just seed the ground, raise the possibility of left populism. That's it. Just put it out there as an option. And I, and I did that. He did. He was like, I wasn't wild about Bernie Sanders. I didn't like the guy. I think he had an issue with the idea of things being possible. And he just, he was like, what is he even done and like you know he he didn't know a lot about bernie but that's fine a lot of people don't most people are busy and they don't have time to know about all the things so i said look i i appreciate oh no i remember what he said he said bernie was a hypocrite because he wasn't paying his staffers a living wage that's what he said <laughs> at which point i was like oh yeah i saw those stories too unfortunately and then i had to disclose well i actually worked for bernie i didn't say doing well <laughs> and you know i i read those stories too it was very frustrating because i said to him you know how there were all of that those stories about Trump that were kind of unfair to him and that the media was against him because he was an outsider and they didn't know what to do with him? And he was like, yeah. I was like, I know it's hard to believe, but Bernie's kind of the same way for us on the left. And we don't have our own Fox News. You know, CNN and MSNBC, they hated Bernie more than anyone. So it was really hard to push back against those kind of narratives. But I told him about how we were the first union – unionized uh, national political campaign and how Bernie paid for all of our health insurance through the general election. He was like, Oh, I was like, yeah. So I don't know. He didn't say, Oh, now I love Bernie, you know, <laughs> but you know, it was, it was, it was something. I, I think yeah. that some, if something like this comes up, if a Bernie adjacent candidate comes up, I think there will not be the same rote dismissal as there was before. And that's all I can ask for, for a 40, 40 minute car ride <laughs> in the suburbs of Cleveland. Okay, well, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate all of the work that you do, and uh, thank you for taking my call. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Keep the faith. All right. Now, Samuel, like, hold on to your hat. I'm going to come back to you. People in the front of the line, don't panic. I'm just going to spice it up a little bit and go to Ben. How you doing, Ben? Ben, with your little cute alien emoji, are you with us? Did I, was I too, did I jump around too much? Have I shocked you? Okay. How about Bruce? What's on your mind, Bruce? Bree, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, yeah. Um, yeah, it's my first time calling in as well. I'm I here thought in, so. Yeah, Welcome. Here in, yeah, calling in from Minneapolis. But um, anyway, I was 
I tune into a lot of these different left shows, and um, I also tune into Breaking Points quite a lot too. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you watch them much at all, but they recently like announced this new uh, Friday show with uh, Ryan Grimm and Emily Jasinski from. Mm-hmm. Uh, they used to work on The Rising. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it seems like Breaking Points is positioning themselves as sort of an alternative or kind of uh, they're really like poaching a lot of different talent from uh, from Rising and like trying to recreate their the sort of lightning in a bottle that they had on that program. And so I'm wondering, since you're now part of the Rising uh, network, if you would ever consider uh, if you're ever offered like a contract or some sort of thing with Breaking Points, would you ever consider jumping ship and going over to there? Well, I don't really see myself – I mean, I have my own show, and I do Rising on a kind of provisional basis. Um, and I really appreciate the production team and the staff over there. They've been so you know generous with their time, and they're the ones – like I said this on last week's episode – who've really kind of had to weather – uh, you know, the, the staff changes from the hosts, you know, they've stayed consistent and they're the ones that are kind of experiencing the consequences of all of this. So I, I, I feel, you know, I feel a weird um, kinship with them at this point and am not especially looking to do anything different. And I have, you know, appreciated their willingness to give me a platform. Um, and I like working with Robbie. So uh, the answer, I guess, is that is is no. Um, but you know, I you know support Ryan and Emily and whatever they want to do, and I think it's great that Breaking Point has the, I guess, financial ability to support all of the different kinds of programming that exist, especially the extent to which they are lifting up a, bu- a bunch of journalists like, you know, uh, uh, David Sirota and Jordan Charrington, who are doing a lot of grassroots reporting and important research that is like the foundation upon which the rest of this left media infrastructure is built. So I'm, I'm very, I'm very happy to have any growth in the left media space that can happen. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. So yeah, you like working with Robbie. So do you feel like uh, you kind of have a lot of, a lot of impact on his audience as well as, as not since you're like kind of, stepping out of your echo chamber a bit, do you feel like you're kind of winning them over in some ways and different things like that? <laughs> I don't know about that. I, again, I think that you have to have kind of moderated goals here, but you know, to the extent that there are times when a radar lands and the comments are like, I'm with you. Even my last radar didn't get a lot of views um, about uh, money and politics, but it had some like basically uniformly positive comments about how, yeah, I don't agree with you a lot, Brianna, but like I'm hundred percent with you on this. This is a real problem. And I, I take that as a win and that's all you can do. Yeah. That's it, really cool to know that, that you can at least uh, reach out to those audiences and they have to, they're kind of twit kicking and screaming to have to agree with you on some points. That's kind of nice to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it just yeah. Sometimes I just find that there's so much a balkanization in the media scape, especially in like the alternative YouTube, you know, bread tube space. Like a lot of people are just sort of, for all we we talk about, like kind of like collective ownership or like maybe like more leftist values. It seems like we got a lot of like small business, you know, sort of hustler mindsets on all these different little leftist shows, and they all kind of are just fending for their own stuff. But yeah, I would think I would I would personally want to see like. I mean, TYT used to kind of be like that, I guess, and yeah. try to be like that alternative mainstream 
looking platform, but I really feel like Breaking Points is a a lot to to offer that space because because they do offer sort of the du- the duality of the political spectrum. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I think look, I heard a lot of people after my discussion with Chang say that they really did come to the space to left media space because of TYT, and they really you know kind of missed the show and the way it used to be for various reasons. And I'm not opining on whether or not it's changed. I have not been a long time watcher, but people have said things that were substantive and also said things like, Oh, it's COVID time. So they're not in the studio together as much. And that changes the show. So for all of the reasons, I think it's great. If, if breaking points is able to fulfill a need that people have lost or experiences as having lost. And I think it's great that they're doing so much to support other people in the left media space where frankly, there is often like, it's very hard to break through. It is difficult if you're covering the quote unquote boring stuff, like just talking to workers in the street, like Max Alvarez and what have you, like people don't click on that stuff the way that they do like on debate, debate, you know, debate bro videos and, and things like that. And it's not blaming, but you know, time is short. People are tired. They want catharsis and it is what it is. So when people who have demonstrated ability to get a larger audience, help other people out, I don't see that as anything but a benefit to the left. Yeah. Now that's good to hear. Yeah. Well, thanks for taking my call. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for calling in Bruce. Take care. Yeah. Take care. See you. Uh, Samuel. Coming back to the front of the line. Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind tonight. Oh, am I now like spooking people on the front of the line? People in the front of the line are getting comfortable. Like I'm not going to call on them. Oh, hello, Brianna. You there? <laughs> yeah. Hey, Samuel. How are you doing? First, okay. Okay. For some reason, I pressed unmute and it closed the window. I don't, I've never seen that happen before. I'm sorry. But, uh, I know it can be a little buggy. I managed, you I managed to reopen. You, you uh, got great here. To, <laughs> good. It's great to talk with you again. I've called in a few times and it's always a pleasure. I love, love all your work and uh, your commentary about student debt was great. Um, you know, I, I already agreed and had heard most of your arguments, so I couldn't really tell if it had really landed or not, but it seemed from the comments that it made the impression you wanted. And that was great. And, um, I just, again, I kind of have things on my mind that have come up over the past few weeks and I have all these conflicting thoughts and feelings about them. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I just wanted to see if you had any thoughts, but there was a fellow who called in a few weeks ago. I won't name names, but he basically, he sort of put forward these sort of fears and warnings that you hear a lot, especially, you know, from liberals and also sometimes from more left-leaning people who like claim to be leftists, but this fear that there are people out there like Glenn Greenwald, for example, who are sort of out to get us or trick us and that they're, they're in bad faith. He kept using this phrase, bad faith, which I thought was ironic because that's the name of your podcast. And I take it as kind of a like tongue in cheek joke mm-hmm. that like people will call me bad faith as a leftist because mm-hmm. That's sort of how they try to discredit you, right? Mm-hmm. And so I just found it weird. Like, there seem to be a lot of people who are afraid that, like, if you say something that sounds similar to something a conservative said, 
that means that you're like a closet conservative who's trying to trick us and Mm -hmm. that there are these grifters out there. All these people are grifters and people are using this about Glenn Greenwald. And I thought it was amazing. You know, people say it about Jimmy Dore, about several years ago, I had a very good friend who's a, you know, progressive from a working class background. And I mentioned Jimmy Dore and he said, oh, well, uh, Jimmy Dore's not good because he had Ron Paul on his show. And I was like, <laughs> okay, well, why is that bad? Like, they were talking about foreign policy issues on which they agree. Like, Ron Paul happens to agree with progressives about not getting involved in foreign adventures and destabilizing other countries. So isn't it a good thing to bring him on the show? And my friend said, no, that's bad because that legitimizes Ron Paul. And I was like, Ron yeah. Paul is a U.S. congressman. He is elected <laughs> to Congress by the people of Kentucky. That legitimizes him. Going on the Jimmy Dore show does legitimize him. But there seems to be this constant fear that people are out there to trick us. And also that that other leftists are all stupid or the general public is just stupid. And they're going to be tricked and taken in. Right. Yeah. I know Ron Paul is bad, but there are other people out there who are going to be tricked and sort of brainwashed if they get exposed to just hearing his point of view. And yeah, it always confuses me because it strikes me as such a fearful, such a fearful view of the world. I kind of can't imagine thinking this way, but like there are all these people out to trick us and and uh, and we're always in danger of being somehow fooled or other people are going to get fooled and I have to protect them against it. And there was just one other ironic point that came up when that caller uh, a few weeks ago was talking about Glenn Greenwald, where he sort of took up this line that's been going around that Glenn Greenwald is really bad now because he defended Bolsonaro or, or somehow described Bolsonaro as being a victim of censorship. And I had heard about that going around and I looked at the interview and Glenn Greenwald simply says, it's wrong for big platforms like Twitter or Facebook to censor what people are allowed to hear, including when the president of a country, as much as horrible as he may be, as much as I may oppose him, Twitter and Facebook shouldn't be deciding whether the citizens of a country can hear what their own president is saying. And it struck me as that's being consistent. And if you point out, as people often do, Glenn Greenwald himself and his family were targeted by Bolsonaro. Well, that doesn't mean Glenn is being inconsistent. It means he's being very consistent. It means he's saying, I'm against censorship no matter what even if it's centering someone who's my enemy. So I just wanted to see what you, what you, if you have any thoughts about that, about this strange sort of mentality about, um, you know, everybody's about to go over to the dark side or everybody's about to seduce us over to the dark yeah. side. And- so Sam, Sam, first of all, I've heard everything that you've said, but until about, 20 seconds ago you were very glitchy like you were talking through oh, okay. a fan so i'm not sure what you did to make it better it's good now but just okay, stay okay. wherever you are okay <laughs> um so yeah i mean I, I look this speech stuff i think is weirdly polarizing in a way that it is kind of consistently surprising to me because when i was growing up 
the example of the ACLU defending the Nazis' right to march in Washington was like foundational to a liberal ethos. And the whole mm-hmm. point was you had all of these leftist lawyers, you had so many of them Jewish and black lawyers willing to defend this hate group because of what the right meant, the, the right to speech meant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it is frustrating that ever, you know, that, that people's defending of those general principles is being weaponized as part of this broader move to say so-and-so is bad because of who they associate with, as opposed to kind of substantively. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I similarly am frustrated by it. I think that the currency of social media is that there's so much volume that if someone says somebody's bad, then it's better just to believe it or at least mm-hmm. to like stay neutral uh, because no one wants, you know, you, we've all seen the tweets where you like, you say something about some actor and they're like, oh, they're bad actually, <laughs> you know, and you're like, oh, okay. You know, there's, there's a kind of a shorthand that exists and it feeds on each other. I completely take your point about platforming. I think it's so ridiculous the way that people act like, you know, we are all smaller than most of the people we're talking about. And the idea that I could ever platform Ben Shapiro or Jordan Peterson or Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene is kind of silly. Quite to the contrary, Marjorie Taylor Greene retweets my video saying that she's, a, you know, an idiot, but that we should defund the FBI. I see that as a win. She just platformed me. She's got a million yeah. plus Twitter followers or whatever. So I, I, I completely agree. Now, there's another critique that says, and, and I'm so glad you brought this up because I have a banger of an episode coming for you for Thursday. I just finished recording it this evening right before I got on this call. And as I sometimes do, I will go ahead and let the column audience in on the scoop. It's Dr. West, Cornell West is coming back on the podcast and we talk about exactly this. And I asked him about, you know, how do you navigate being in all the spaces that you're in, you know, having moments where you are fighting for black liberation with someone like Louis Farrakhan, who has been criticized rightly for anti-Semitic Semitic comments how do you manage to, to move through these spaces and ally on the things you need to ally on and not get kind of dragged down in the stuff that you don't agree with? You know, is it just that you are this like really compassionate person with a long record of fighting on the right side of things? So people cut you some slack. Does it have to do with your willingness to call out the bad aspects that you don't agree with? And he was like, yeah, I think it's all of those things. But he says, you know, you do have to be you know, stand in righteous, compassionate opposition to those aspects of a person's worldview that you don't agree with and be clear about what the distinctions are. And I think that some people criticize folks for not doing that strongly enough. I had Nathan Robinson and Glenn on the show debating whether or not Nathan felt that Glenn did do that enough when he goes onto these spaces, Tucker Carlson, et cetera. Do you make it sufficiently clear that there's all this other stuff that's being said that you don't agree with on Tucker's show or on Fox or whatever? And I think that everyone's line is different. And Crystal and I talked about that a little bit on this week's episode as well. How, you know, do you spend every second of a show with someone like Robbie or Sagar saying, no, 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 I disagree with you. I disagree in a way that shuts down any conversation because I disagree with every single word coming out of his mouth. Or do you let some of the stuff pass under the radar, acknowledge it was just maybe an eye roll or a shake of the head and get to the meat of the potatoes and pick your battles? And are there people who are watching who feel like they're being thrown under the bus because you chose to let their issue go? You know, and it's it's a difficult balance. I'm not going to pretend it's easy. But it was nice to be able to talk to Crystal about it because I don't know that anyone else is really 
in quite the identical space that I'm in <laughs> with a co-host, mm-hmm. you know, I'm literally on the show that she, you know, that she was the model for that she created, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. It is, it is a tricky balance, but I'm, I, I think sometimes people really cross over into a kind of madness. It seems where like, say you, you post something reflecting your convictions and people can agree or disagree. Marjorie Taylor Greene, a crazy right winger retweets it. Isn't that a win? And it, it reminds me of, uh, if you look at, you know, ancient religious texts, you know, you can see things like the, the, the rule from the Qumran community, which was like this very purist, isolated, almost monastic Jewish community 2000 years ago. And one of the big things they were discussing and debating in their texts was about the purity of vessels, like, um, you know, a bowl or a cup has to be kosher, mm-hmm. you know, ritually pure to drink from it. But then the question was, if you have an impure bowl and then you take a cup and you pour water out of it into the impure bowl, does that contaminate the cup? Mm. Do you see what I'm saying? It's the question is, does the impurity flow upstream? Mm -hmm. And that's what it so often seems to me like it's this sort of obsession with we have to keep ourselves pure from the bad people and the bad thoughts and and uh and if they agree with us that's not a good thing that contaminates us <laughs> yeah it seems yeah. like this weird backwards thinking and it's very it's very hard to work through and i'm i'm always my head sort of spins when people talk about this person's bad faith and and they uh you know they've gone over to the dark side but all that being said i also just wanted to quickly contradict myself and say, uh, you know, I also listened to your discussion of Bhatia Angar Sargon and, you know, our, our dear friend and her comments about, about student debt and how infuriating they were. And, um, I'll j- I just wanted to, I, I wanted to reach through the phone and just tell you it, that it happens that I was aware of her from Jewish issues, mm-hmm. uh, before she went on this jag about, you know, claiming to protect the working class from the evil, you know, student debtors. And, uh, and she was the opinion editor of the forward, which is a very old institution that began as a Yiddish leftist newspaper. It was the newspaper of militant unions, uh, Marxist, anarchist, it was a venerable Jewish working class institution. Mm. And in recent years, it's basically become just another New York liberal bag, <laughs> you know, to put it bluntly. And she was mm. a big part of that. And she was a big proponent of calling critics of Israel anti-Semites. Mm. And she was one of the leaders of that. And she helped to push forward the smear campaign against Corbyn which I think of as one of the biggest tragedies of, of recent years, the just character destruction of Jeremy Corbyn. And you may recall, she was the one who leapt on Ilhan Omar and said, mm-hmm. uh, you're, you're using anti-Semitic tropes, you know, which ironically, it's sort of similar. It's like, I can't actually say that 
Ilhan Omar said anything explicitly anti-Semitic, but I have to somehow read into her words that there are these sort of hidden evil tropes <laughs> that are out to get us, which I, I don't believe in. I, I, that is not a superstition I subscribe to, that there are these sort of hidden tropes out to get us. And it's, you know, it's very hard for me not to look at what she's doing now and say, this person is a shill. This person must know what she's doing. This is so dishonest and manipulative. So I've sort of had this little back and forth in my mind. And, you know, I don't know what you want to say about her personally. She's sort of a colleague. So, you know, it's up to you. But it just sort of occurred to me that I'm, I am I feel this kind of tug of war where I'm like, I would like to just completely reject her and say, this is not an honest actor. And yet at the same time, that's precisely what uh, annoys me and confuses me when I see other people doing the same sort of thing. So I'm very conflicted about it. And I guess for me, my only sort of resolution is to say, well, look, I don't trust Batya Ungar Sargon. I don't see her as an honest person at all. I think that she's some kind of shill, but I still have to hear what she says with an open mind and say, no matter how much I don't like her or trust her, uh, sometimes she might say something true, right? Anybody, even a stopped clock is right mm -hmm. twice a day. So, yeah, I don't know if you had any other thought about that or have seen, have felt maybe a similar sort of conflict or push and pull between those two things. I disagree with a lot of what Batia believes. Because we are sort of colleagues, I feel like I need to hash those disagreements out in person. I, mm -hmm. you know, did have the episode with her on Bad Faith where we talked through some of this, but I feel very strongly that she is not representing what I would describe as a left perspective on many issues. And my biggest grievance isn't that she believes what she believes. A lot of people believe what she believes, but that she is put forward as representative of a left point of view when mm -hmm. she and, her, and many of her beliefs are so antithetical to what a leftist would actually argue. Yeah. So I don't know what you want to call that. And I certainly am not in possession of any evidence to make claims of, you know, being a shill or a plan or anything like that. <laughs> but I do find that particular combination of things to be very disorienting mm -hmm. and more frustrating than folks who just are openly like I'm, a conservative and therefore I don't like student debt. I am a neoliberal and therefore I don't like student debt. And like I said, in that, that last of my mini series of student debt radars, I find it to be, um, you know, it's, it's a dishonest, it's a particularly dishonest way to oppose student debt, to pretend that it is somehow a boon to elites at the same time that you work for an elite institution, you have an elite background, you benefit from your access to college, and you know that the overwhelming majority of the people who are going to be affected by this program make under, what was it, $75,000 a year? Uh, mm -hmm. I think that that is, in cloaking that as an argument for working people, just say you like rich people. I'm not saying this about Bata, but generally speaking, like, just if, if you think that rich people shouldn't have to pay for poor people, just say that. Yeah. Like, if, if you don't want to tax the rich and support social programs, just say that. 
If you want to have access to college because you know that the value of your degree diminishes the more people have access to it, just say that. I can respect that honesty a lot more than some of the pretexts that have been bandied around, especially the idea that you're claiming that it's a left perspective and that, you know, working class people don't want the same opportunities that elite people want. That is craven to me. <laughs> and I do not care for it. So I hope to have the opportunity to be able to um, engage with her a little more substantively about those things going on, going forward. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for, for all the work you do. And um, maybe I'll call, I'll call more down the road as the moments come up, but you know, I speak for a lot of people. You're, I, I think you're the only sane person in America. As, I, as I've said, <laughs> oh, Lord. That's, no, that's not the case. Don't don't tell any of my family members that they're all tired of me after this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> well, there may be five or six, five <laughs> right. or six. But thank you. Thank you for going in, Samuel. Good luck. Keep the thank faith. You. Keep the faith. Oh, there was there was a woman in the queue after Samuel that I was looking forward uh, on calling on, and she has disappeared, and that makes me sad. So I'm just gonna scroll, 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 and. Grace. How are you doing, Grace? Hello? You were there for like a second, Grace. I think it's just the app. Yeah, is it there now? Yeah, you're here. It kept like muting and unmuting. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. What's on your mind tonight? Um, I wanted to talk about the battle for the soul of our nation. (laughs) I, I've been spending a lot of time in Philly recently and I was actually Mm -hmm. driving through on, I guess maybe that was Thursday, whenever he, you know, he was coming that Mm -hmm. day. Um, but then I just saw a Facebook post today from like a questionable relative (laughs) that said, um, it really showed that he was a puppet for the left. So then (laughs) I had to watch it. Um, yeah. And I was like, what about this? Um, but yeah, I found it like very ominous and um, I was curious about your um, your thoughts about using the term MAGA Republicans as I guess that's like the boogeyman of the situation now. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's so weird. Um, <laughs> I think it's I think it's so weird. So to be what, let's ask ourselves a series of questions. What is the goal of adding the qualifier MAGA? It seems to me to be an effort to say that there's a subset of Republicans that are more extreme and more crazy and that the average Republican doesn't want to identify with. Okay. But isn't it also true to make America great again? I'm sorry? I was going to say it also seems for Trump, you know? Oh, and average for Trump? Yeah, in some ways it does, like, inject him back into the conversation, which he's been, you know, banned from <laughs> on platforms. But, but the, the other part of it is that, you know, it was truly just the campaign slogan of the last Republican president, who all of the Republicans voted for. So 
it it doesn't do the job that it's supposed to do, which is I think it's an effort to not say all Republicans, but to encourage the good Republicans to go back to being good Republicans and to stop being bad Republicans. But truly, Trump became president because more Republicans voted for him than people voted for Hillary Clinton. So it doesn't have any of the limiting effect that picking a different kind of terminology. So you could say something like right-wing extremists. You could say something like white supremacists. You could say a lot of things that would be a much smaller cohort, or at least in the eyes of Republicans who see themselves as not white supremacists or extremists, would not include them. But when you literally use the campaign slogan like MAGA people are starting to, to act like it's like a like a like a pejorative I mean I understand why liberals think it's a pejorative and why people who don't like Trump think it's a pejorative but it truly is just like saying like RNC Republicans it's all of everyone voted for Trump obviously that's how he became president I, so I, I just I don't get it like I don't get what work it's supposed to be doing other than telling all the Republicans that you think that there is something especially deranged about them for having voted for Trump, which maybe you agree with and that maybe that's true, but I don't know how that helps you in an electoral context. Yeah. And it just, I mean, all along, I'm just, I've been waiting for them to figure out like that, you know, well, first of all, I think when you're bringing it alongside Trump's terminology, then you're connecting it to him specifically, meaning that, like, let's say he kills over before the next election and just puts somebody with, you know, the same policies, um, you know, if DeSantis ends up running or something like that. Now you've, mm-hmm. like, connected this whole notion to, you know, to that as well. Um, I, I just, mm-hmm. I just think it's so crazy and I don't understand like what is wrong with their communications <laughs> and is that the pitch uh, yeah. is going to be the pitch for the election is it's like ooh, man. <laughs> it's like I mean look um, I I confess to only have seen clips of the speech I you know it happened Thursday I went home on vacation and, and gave myself a gift of not paying attention to anything uh, over the weekend but I I mean that was the gist <laughs> You know, it, I, I don't, like, there. there's so many things you could say, like, I understand this is a divided country. I understand that, you know, there are 33 million of us, 330 million of us, we're not going to agree on everything. But there is a lot that we do agree on. And it was, you know, just a real disappointment for a lot of people that this unelected Supreme Court took away a right that 60% of Americans support and that millions of women have been relying on for half a century. You know, we disagree on so many things, and I hope that we can come together as a community and keep having conversations about it. But we agree that people who work an honest day's work should be, get paid a living wage, and we have a crisis in this country. We disagree on a lot of things, but I should hope that we agree that in the richest country in the history of the world, people shouldn't be dying from an inability to access insulin. And why can't my Republican colleagues get on board with X, Y, and Z? Like, that's a kind of speech you can give that makes the point of about extremism without relying on the presumption that everyone already agrees with you on what constitutes extremism. You have to define your terms, especially when the country is in fact so polarized that nobody believes you when you just make a blanket statement like so-and-so is an extremist or a MAGA Republican. You are doing the opposite of healing the soul of this nation. Now, 
it might not be, you might not think you're ethically obliged to heal the soul of the nation or reach out to conservatives and all of that stuff. I've said a million times, no one has to do that. But if you are not willing to do that or interested in doing that, I certainly don't think you should be the president of the United States of America. And also, if you're somebody who already believes, say, that the election was a lie, um, then like exactly everything that is happening is what one would expect that's just going to justify your already, you know, off base point of view. You know, everything that they're doing just feeds into the narrative exactly. And to me, yeah, to me, that's what that's what Trump has always been best at. Like, that's his whole, you know, he's like a the finger trap you know you the more you try to pull yeah. out the more, more you get in and and i feel like uh yeah but it's just it's just wild to me that they haven't that they have no other plan that they i mean they're obviously they don't want to run him as you know but they also have no other viable options there's no way they could like sneak someone in the side they can't put kamala up there you know um yeah i, mean, I just i just think it's Crystal very interesting about this I think, you know, we disagreed a little bit on this. I still think, you know, she's very confident that Biden is going to run. I am not. I th- but even if. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not saying I know anything. I, you know, I, I'm not saying i 100% sure that he won't. I just am still unsettled by all of the people who are centrist Democrats who seem to all indicate that there would be a decision made after midterms. Something about after midterms, after midterms, after midterms. Enough people said that, that. I'm waiting until after midterms to decide whether I think Biden's going to run. Um, but I, I don't, for me, it's funny. Crystal also felt like Kamala getting around Kamala was going to be the biggest issue because if they did want to run someone other than Biden, it would be awkward to skip over Kamala. I don't know, man. I yeah, think for Kamala sure. Is, <laughs> you can work with Kamala. Kamala is no Hillary Clinton. Kamala is not sitting around, That's you true. know, drawing pictures of herself in the Oval Office. Kamala can barely believe she's here. <laughs> and I think right. that there's a package that you could offer to Kamala that would be just fine and, and allow her to save face. Whether it's, you know, Supreme Court justice or, you know, just a sweet lobbying gig that makes her multimillionaire because she doesn't have as much <laughs> money as some of these other people, you know. Like, whatever it is, I don't think that getting rid of Kamala is the worst part of it. I do think you have to decide on who the alternative is, though. And, well, and who's the next? Factors. Yeah. I think that you know, and be I, rid of her. And then, who, like, it's not like there's a, a third choice there. Um, but Tia, yeah, I mean, well, but it's, yeah. I mean, there, there's the Pete conversation, and I think that Crystal makes Pete, a good point that Pete is not uh, does not have the power behind him that Hillary did that was able to convince Joe Biden to stay out of it. But I'm kind of operating under the presumption that there are reasons why even Biden is not, when I might not want to try again. Like maybe yeah, health reasons or I things think like so. that, which again, we don't know, but so anyway, yeah, I think I, you should take I, last week. Oh, sorry. It, I think there's like a delay. Um, last week we were talking about, you know, an ideal position for you. And I don't know if this is this or create it, but I think you should just be, you know, like a person in general for, for the left. So like, you know, I think you guys are like, just um, Hey Grace, you're getting really choppy. Grace, you're breaking up. Are you there? I heard you say 
Councilman for the left, but yeah, you sound clearer now. On and off of my Wi-Fi, trying to figure out which is best. Um, but yeah, because I think we're going to really be in a situation where we're going to have a lot of talking points to come up with, particularly as it relates to this narrative, which they're going to probably with the strongest case yet be like, if you don't vote, you know, if you mm. don't vote this way, it's a vote for fascism, you know? Mm. Oh, totally. Um, this is what's <laughs> this is what's going to happen. It's so interesting. I, I asked Dr. West about this and you guys will hear it on Thursday. But so you know, I asked him, you know, what do you think about this fascism language? And he was making the point that he's been using language like that since 2004, since um, uh, Tea Party. Uh, no, since his uh, book about saving democracy, who, which is like the title of which is flown out of my brain. Um, West Democracy 2004 book. Um, democracy matters. Oh God, duh. Um, since democracy <laughs> matters, and. I, you know, I, I was like, okay, but like, what is that word doing in this context? If we call Trump a fascist, why aren't we calling Biden a fascist? You know, what, how are we defining fascism here? And is it just the degree of harm? Because there's an argument that Democrats have been able to accomplish what Republicans never could because we allow them to, because Democrats don't object to the, to, you know, the war on crime or the social safety net being stripped away under Clinton and all the other kinds of things. And we have this back and forth about, you know, even if Trump is a fascist, then what does it mean for us to be calling one political party or one actor fascist and not the other political party? And are we in in doing that and validating one half of the system, which promotes fascism across the board, participating in it ourselves? And it's an, it's an interesting philosophical question. And he does a beautiful job with it. I also ask him about, you know, the, you know, the, the Trump raid and the FBI abolishment and his take on whether or not it's aligning with fascists to agree with Marjorie Taylor Greene on this and all of that stuff. So I look forward I mean, to you guys hearing it. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think to me, fascism, I think one of the big differences and not, you know, is that they're trying to make it all one person deciding, you know, it's actually saying we don't think that people should have um, a say in this. And even if the Democrats don't actually do it, they at least still say that that's what they're well, trying well, to was, do and like let's argument. go vote this is my argument if 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 biden gets to be not a fascist because he technically on paper supports hr1 but can't pass hr1 and arguably doesn't want to either or doesn't pass a more substantive voting rights bill you know then are we helping like what what a job are we doing by not calling that out by some name even if it's not fascism if neither party improves voting rights and if both parties are doing things like promoting mass incarceration and endless war, what what is what is the organizing principle behind the titles that we apply? Right. Yeah. Well, I, I, I I'm that's... not saying every everybody's the same, both sides are the same, but like, <laughs> you know, what 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 are we actually doing here? And like, because I think that the reason people are objecting, you know, there was a whole media cycle where. Trump call the Republicans. Uh, sorry, Democrats call people fascists. Republicans say, "I can't believe we'll call us fascists. That's beyond the pale." Mehdi Hassan, Hassan does a supercut of all the times Republicans have called Democrats fascists, and you discover, oh, everyone's just calling everybody a fascist. Okay, so what do we, what are we, what are we taking from this? Is it the boy who called fascist? Yeah, and I, I mean, I think a big part of it, um, 
I think Kyle was one of the first callers, you know, talking about just the idea of revolution versus incrementalism. And I think, you know, in general, that's the whole thing about the Democrats, right, is that they're going to keep pretending like they're going to do the thing in order to never do it. Um, And then the other side is just going to say, you know, exactly what they're going to do and then do it. But I think that they're crumbling all on their own. Um, You know, I think they're creating their own like destructive revolution like that. Like, honestly, like this Biden speech feels like it could incite violence from people who are already teetering on the edge, you know? Um, So I, yeah, I think in a way it is going to remake itself. Um, Yeah. No, we should just dream, dream in that direction because we are going to be ready to build that um, instead of waiting for them, you know? I certainly hope so. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I appreciate you. I hope you have a good night. Thank you. I appreciate you too, Grace, always. Thanks for calling in. All right, Enrique, I'm coming for you. Look alive. Hey. Hello. Welcome. You were very quick on the draw. How are you doing this evening? Uh, I'm good. Yeah, I'm just hanging out with my cat, doing normal stuff. Oh, and the cat purrs perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) She, like, does this chirp stuff. Oh, dude, it's so cute. I just got her. But, so... I wanted to chat for a little bit um, about, so you were talking with Crystal about how like the left a lot of times is getting like disaffected by things, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm from Cleveland. I was born there, right you know, I like, uh, I've lived in Ohio all my life. And I, so I saw Nina Turner lose twice <laughs> mm-hmm. and that, that sucked dog. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I don't know. And I wasn't old enough to watch Bernie lose. Um, So I kind of am agnostic on that one. But I kind of wanted to, like, get your thoughts on, like, uh, like, so you always, like, say, like, keep the faith. So I'm, like, wondering, like, how how do you do that, dude? Because this sometimes is, I don't know, it's wild. Uh, You should listen to this uh, Cornell West episode because we just uh, talked about this. Uh, But it's almost um, keep the faith in some ways is a little bit of a misnomer because I don't think you necessarily do it because you think that you 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 keep the faith you keep trying because that's all you can do not necessarily because you're especially hopeful in any given moment and it can't I think depend on how optimistic or hopeful or faithful you are from day to day because then there would be days that you completely checked out and would be justified in doing so. And I said, this this is so funny that um, Grace was just talking about the finger traps, which I genuinely am not sure now that it's on my tongue. And when I was saying it in the interview, whether or not it was inappropriate for us to refer to them as Chinese finger traps when we were kids, but that's, you know, I don't know. We're just going to keep calling them finger traps, so but everyone okay. knows what page we're on. <laughs> but there is that like pulling there's that that idea of the harder it gets, the more it feels like I, you have to try, and that's something other than faith. And I'm not exactly sure what that is, but to me, it feels like when we talk about why we don't support the death penalty, and it's not about this, you know, I mean, it is a little bit about how many innocent people are killed, but it's it's even if it weren't the case, even if you saw the person 
in front of a crowd of a hundred and a bunch of video cameras on a live feed, murder another human being. You knew they were guilty. Blah, 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 blah. Mm. What does it say about us as a society to kill people, had to have the state kill people? And I feel that same way about trying to improve our collective condition. What does it say about me and what does it say about the society for me to not to at least try no matter how futile it is? Nice. Yeah, that was a lot of good insight. Um, so I also was wondering about like, um, so what, like, I, I really like Marianne, honestly, but like, I don't know if my parents would like Marianne. Like, I don't know if like, like I'm friends with a lot of like conservatives, um, from like the Ohio Valley and like, as much as I would love them to like, like a Marianne character, like it's, you know, so like, I, but I see like the qualities in her. So I'm like wondering, like, have you, like, what sort of like qualities do you think would be in like this, like, unifying character for the left? Cause like, I, like, when I saw your like Chank interview, like, I, it just felt so like combative. Like, so I'm like wondering, like, if there is a quality in a person that would kind of like <laughs> unify those like, you know, forces. I mean, we, I think we see a lot of these qualities sometimes spread over lots of different kinds of people, right? Like, I think that doc, Dr. West's compassion is so important. His ability, to, and it, it comes from his own spiritual beliefs, his ability, ability to kind of always see people as people first. And people, and, and the idea that people have an intrinsic value regardless of their beliefs or even their actions, you know? that that guides his approach to human beings and you can feel that and it makes you trust him as an interlocutor. Even if you might not agree with him, you have this faith that he's doing it. He, he's, he, he's acting on what he really believes is going to be best for folks. And I think for different reasons, people felt that about Bernie, it wasn't spiritual as much as his consistency over time and his issue focusedness made people believe that he wasn't acting out of anything other than a sincere belief that this would make people's lives better. But what Bernie was lacking, I think, was a little bit of that dexterity that someone like Cornel West has, who is this amazing, you know, uh, orator. Or even mm-hmm. someone like Michelle, uh, sorry, um, um, Marianne Williamson, who has an ability, a, a lot of emotional intelligence and can connect with people and be conversational and respond to things that are a little lewd or saucy or pop culture and jokey and roll with the punches in a way that is very relatable. And that engenders a certain degree of trust. And it's difficult because, you know, Bernie has qualities that Marianne doesn't and vice versa. And it remains to be seen how much, you know, Marianne will reveal certain qualities if she decides to run and as we, as a community, get to know her more as she's more on the national stage, if those qualities are already there, if there are other qualities that compensate for what maybe she doesn't have that Bernie had. I understand that the her approach is you know, foreign to a lot of people. <laughs> but I also don't think that there can be this one-to-one expectation that just because I'm like a blue-collar worker from Philadelphia, you know, Pittsburgh or whatever – I'm not going to like this woman because she is, you know, an, an elite author about, you know, uh, matters of the heart and soul. I, I think that she ha- actually has had this broad appeal 
it's not a mainstream political appeal, but it's broad. You know, it's like it's like how people yeah. acted surprised about like some of these va- fantasy books that go viral just because like nerd culture isn't, you know, front and center. We all know when the football happens, when the Super Bowl happens, because it's all forced down our throats. But there's all kinds of subcultures that millions of people. Mr. Beast? Like, I didn't know who Mr. Beast was until like a year ago because like a 12-year-old told me. You know, like there's all kinds of things that millions of people know and like that just are not mainstream. And that has nothing to do with anything. And I think Marianne is like that. And, And she has said that as she went around the country during her presidential candidacy, she would talk to these crowds that came in skeptical and went out loving her and giving her standing ovations. And I believe that I've seen evidence of that. Yeah. I mean, I, w- I wasn't working for her on her you know, campaign trail, but I have seen her in rooms and other kinds of spaces where she's had that effect. So I just, you know, I don't know how it would play, but I do think it's wrong to presume that because she's not literally wearing a hard hat, yeah. you know, people aren't going to like her. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I don't know. I think she's, I think she's got the goods. I think I, yeah, we just have to like see her more like in that capacity. Um, but yeah, well, that's all I had. Um, I'll hop off so someone else can get up here, but yeah, thanks for chatting with me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Keep the faith. Yeah. <laughs> Which now feels <laughs> irony. <tin. laughs> all right. Uh, Frank, I don't think I've ever seen you in here before. What's on your mind? Are you with us, Frank? Can you unmute yourself? Frank going once. Frank going twice. Frank, Frank and Wiener, Frank and Beans. Frankenstein. Okay. How about Sersha? You seem like a new face. How are you doing, Sersha? Can you hear me? Is it unmuted? I can hear you. What's on your mind? So um, I, this is the first time I've called in, and thank you for taking my call. I know this is kind of a, a long call already. Um, no worries. We, we sometimes go for three hours. <laughs> and full disclosure, I haven't seen your talk today with Crystal. I was busy trying to get ranked choice voting passed in my state, so sorry about oh, that. Oh, well but done. No apologies needed. What state are you in? I'm in North Carolina, which is a really complicated state. Yeah, nice. Yeah. There's there's no ballot petition that we can do. And um, there's anyway, you and I can talk about that separately if you'd like. But I had a couple of thoughts. I've been watching a lot of your back episodes. Um, and, you know, I think Samuel's point is really interesting about the kind of like purity that splits the left, right? So we have this thing where you can't say anything that everyone else doesn't 100% agree to. And I think that one way to deal with that is to, is to take the person's statement disaggregated from who they are. So I was listening to your conversation with Batya about college debt, which I agree was um, frustrating and not great, but I also think that she brought up a really interesting point around do these arguments come off as like a left presumption that vocational further education is not something that can be intrinsically valuable to -hmm. people, that they can find value in that. And I think that that is a really interesting, you know, question. I disagree with almost everything else that she said, but I think that that's like a question that's worth 
exploring. Um, and that kind of leads me into, you know, my other thoughts around, um, I listened to your conversation with Kezlin Figueroa, which I really enjoyed. And that idea that we have as the left, we have a great platform, but we don't responding to the, I'm sorry, the guy earlier who spoke about communication and conversations, mm-hmm. like so make, yeah. yeah, making that platform relevant to what people are saying. So when I was in rural parts of North Carolina, letting them talk about their frustrations around health insurance Mm -hmm. and then explaining to them why Obamacare really isn't the problem. Mm -hmm. Obamacare didn't make your health insurance $1,000. It exposed to you the fact that your health insurance is $1,000. And I don't think that we do enough of those kinds of conversations and Mm -hmm. letting people kind of express themselves and then responding to why our platform is relevant to them. And I would say, you know, that there's a discussion around the importance of conversation, because I know I have, obviously, I have connections to Ireland, and when they were trying to get rid of the Eighth Amendment, so that abortion could be legal, so much of that was doorstep conversations with individual people. Mm -hmm. And that's some of the most like labor intensive work but that's how you're going to win. That's how you're going to pass it. And that's how you're going to, you know, convince people. And when we talk about things like um, build back better. Yeah. Kamala Harris went to West Virginia and did a couple of radio spots, but how many pamphlets did they put through letterboxes? How many individual people did they talk to about how it would affect their individual lives and kind of assuage some of the concerns that they had. I don't know what your thoughts are on any of these points, but um, those were kind of my immediate thoughts on listening to some of your back episodes, which I really appreciate and some of the conversation tonight. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think that's a hundred percent right. Unfortunately, Democrats don't believe in persuasion and you can, you can see this in the way they behave often including not spending the time in communities that the, the, to me, some, the worst part of like the Biden speech where he does his own version, the basket of deplorables or whatever, or the basket of deplorables moment is that it is a tell about the democratic party's belief that people who don't already agree with you are not going to agree with you. The only political path forward for them is registering new voters, doing voter access hoping that demographic changes do the trick. And they've been saying that pretty explicitly for years now in a way that I would argue feeds some of the Republican talking points about why Democrats are lax at the border and all of this kind of stuff. It doesn't really help anybody. Uh, It doesn't help immigrants or immigration advocates at all that Democrats are basically linking their political success to the idea that immigrants are going to magically vote Democrat, which they don't even do. Um, So I think you are, right about the benefits of talking to people. I think you're, and this is something I have to remind myself often as well, to let people tell you what they are bothered by rather than making presumptions about what might motivate them politically or what might be the source of the most trouble or anxiety or pain in their life. And to trust people to be able to have conversations and to move and to you know, evolve like we all do. And I wish people put more faith in voters 
as thinkers and people who understand their lives better than anybody else does and made efforts to appeal to them where they are and give what they, they ask for, or at least present potential solutions to their problems that they can respond to in different ways and improve upon and work with you on. But that's just not, it doesn't even occur to people, I think, in the Democratic Party, because there just isn't a belief that anyone who doesn't already agree could ever agree. Yeah, and I think that this kind of language around fascism like only reinforces that, right? Yeah. Because nobody wants to be labeled a fascist. And so it creates, it automatically creates this like binary and my partner in Ireland is actually a union organizer, mm. and they were in butcher shops for several decades. And one of the things they talk about is, I, I don't know if I can be kind of fluid in this, but um, sure. you cannot be in the dialectical materialism circle jerk and, mm -hmm. and unionize people. That's just not a thing. Mm. And I think Teslin Figaro spoke so much to that about how you can't just say entrepreneurship is automatically bad mm -hmm. and you have to be able to talk to people in a way that actually makes sense to them and as someone who's trying to push you know our cv i see this all the time right you can't talk to people as if they already understand this system because some people do and some people really don't and i just think like if the left focused more on that i think if you get that and then you get something like RCV where people can actually vote on, on platforms like that, then you have a chance to actually, you know, break some of that assumption around the Democratic Party versus the Republican Party. But I think it's also a lot of, you know, voter education. Like each of these parties is really three to six parties. They're a coalition, right? So this is why Mitt Romney can't actually get funding for pronatal policies because he would be called a Christian Democrat in any other country and libertarians are not going to do that. And so they devolve into these really crazy kind of culture war arguments over Mr. Potato Head because that's what they can agree on. And I think if we sidestep that kind of do the Bernie thing of taking a different, having a different lane then our message opens up to people in a way that's much more convincing and much more relevant. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And I, I, I am so glad that you enjoyed the Tesla uh, episode. I did as well. And I, I also, I take Bhatia's point about how arguments can come off. And I don't think that every argument in defense of student debt cancellation is a good one. I mean, one of the things I said to Rowan that he said he was going to use, and one of the things I've said more broadly is that if someone says to you, this isn't the most targeted thing to help poor people, don't argue with them about it. It's obviously true. Right. Right? Like Concede the ground that's obviously true. Just yeah. concede it. Because that to me, that's where yeah. some of the elitism slips. Like People think that you are privileging one class, Harvard. whether or not it's elite, yeah. maybe it's like a middle, middle class people, whatever it is. It is people who aren't at the very bottom economic tier. So instead of pretending that it's, you know, obviously people say this helps rich people. You can say, no, it doesn't help rich people. But you can acknowledge that it doesn't help the very, very bottom and say, I would love to help the very bottom. Tell me the policy right. and I support it. And I've been supporting all these policies. The thing is we're doing this one because it's what Biden can do by executive order. 
Like, that's it. That's the whole shebang. It's not because it's more meritorious. Just acknowledge it. Get some credibility out of that acknowledgement. When somebody says to you, I've, I've had these conversations where people will say something about, I don't like some left thing or liberal thing because they may be trans this or woke that or 1619. And I, I'll say, you know, what's unfortunate is that, you know, we all think a lot differently about how people should raise their kids. But, you know, one of the great things about America is that we've always allowed that to be our own business and then for families to have autonomy from the state intervening. You know, I, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm so grateful that, you know, woke, woke, uh, there's a woke corporation that somebody's mad at. Yeah. You know, corporations are a problem for lots of reasons. You know, it's yeah. not just wokeness. Unfortunately, they've been exploiting workers for a real time. Just to, like turn the conversation. It doesn't necessarily yeah. have to be in that moment. We're going to have a whole discourse right. about the underlying issue. Everything has a pivot point. Like I promise yeah, you the thing it. you're mad at, I'm probably also mad at just for different reasons. So I'm just going to talk about the reasons that I'm mad at the thing and see if I can get you to agree and understand that we are, we can be on the same side without you making this about, you know, pronouns, pronouns. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Reframe the conversation. Anyway, those were my thoughts. I'm going to, you've got quite a few callers on here, so I'm going to let you go. Um, and I would love to connect with you a little bit about RCV. I would, I would love to hear, I'd love to hear more about that. Please do. We should have another, uh, brain choice voting episode coming up soon. Oh, you know what? Uh, Yang's supposed to come back on. So maybe that'll be a good time (laughs) to, to open that Pandora's box. But thank you so much for calling in. Yeah. All right. Uh, D, what's on your mind? Hey, D. Yeah, uh, so a couple of thoughts. One, um, I think with the 2024 thing, and I'm not sure if Bot, like I don't think Harris would be a strong nominee. Um, I I do wonder, um, do, I think the left needs to invest more time um, just like the establishment Democrats need to invest more time in like reaching out to activists. I do think the left needs to spend more time trying to understand the normie voter and understand that even if they have certainly problematic views, not even in terms of the social front, because we're always focusing on like the last caller talked about like the social views that they might be problematic. But even in terms of like understanding the normie democratic voter, um, I, I think that's something that anyone who's running is going to need to understand. You know, like I like Nina Turner, but you can't run in Cleveland in a black district and talk about how Biden voting for Biden's like eating a bowl of, of blank. Like you, you just can't do that. And I think there needs to be more of, you know, I appreciate the online left. I appreciate all the the sort of, oh, well, this person doesn't have good enough policy on Yemen. But like the median Democratic voter is terrified of what Republicans are going to do. And even if they don't think Democrats have gone far enough, that's kind of their concern. And and I think there needs to be more introspection of that instead of just kind of um, thinking about, oh, well, we're just going to, because a lot of the left is like, well, we're just going to bring out these new voters and screw the people in the Georgia, screw the suburban voters in the Georgia and in Arizona suburbs that help Biden win. Screw those people. We're just going to bring out our our batch of young voters. And it's like, that's not, that's not going to be a realistic coalition. So I, I, I think that that's something that whoever the left candidate um, runs needs to start thinking about. Like, what is my plan to win Georgia? What is my plan to win Arizona? What is my plan to win the Rust Belt states? 
um, rather than thinking in terms of like just uh, like idealized policy, which is kind of what a lot of uh, lefty Twitter is, is, is talking about constantly. So I agree with the overall point about understanding the normal voter, but I I got to disagree a little bit about the diagnosis of what happened in Cleveland. And, you know, I could be wrong about this. Obviously, Crystal feels differently, and I respect her opinion immensely, but Nina Turner won the day of ballot, right? She won the, the, the people who voted the day of the election voted majority for Nina Turner. That was after the blitz of the campaign messaging and all of the flyers that said eat a bowl of shit and all of that. Most people who turned out on election day voted for Nina Turner. However, she lost because of all of the early ballots that many of which were submitted long before the election had really heated up and every other commercial in the city of Cleveland was about half a bullshit shit and all of that. So I'll tell you this. I have never met a black person who didn't literally go to Howard with Kamala Harris or didn't have a bunch of master's degree in a brown house in Brooklyn who was uh, actually affirmatively fond of Joe Biden and who actually give a sh- gives a damn about whether somebody says that voting for him is like eating half a bowl of shit. They know better than most that that is true. Yes. I think the issue with Nina Turner was frankly that, and, and I know that people disagree with me, Crystal disagrees with me on this. Whether or not I would have advised her to say it in the first instance is one question, but it was out there. It was already said long before she announced her race. Okay. So what do you do with it now that it's out there? I, my belief is that her unwillingness to kind of pick a lane and just live in that truth and explain to the public why she said that, that her job is to hold Biden accountable to the people of Cleveland, not yes, man, his every position. If, to point out the ways in which he has not and Democrats have not delivered for the people of Cleveland, a city that has been in decline for decades since it was once the fifth largest city in America. Yes, I might have gone to the Cleveland Historical Museum over the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, it's it's your job to figure out how to neutralize the thing you've already said or to make it understood because she wasn't, in fact, wrong. But when people sense that hesitation and don't know what lane to follow, and I think that's when you start to get in trouble. But I don't think the very nature of that comment was what damned her. If it were, I don't think you would have seen her do better in day of election ballots than you did the early ballots. Yeah. Well, I was even speaking to Nina, but I was also just speaking like broadly, like, for example, like, and, and a lot of the data people can be annoying because they're centrist, but like, Every member of the squad, like, underperformed Joe Biden in terms of just, like, on the same, like, ballot. And I'm saying that to me is something. Like, the fact that Ilan Omar, with no APAC money, won by three, I obviously support Ilan Omar, but that, that to me is also something. And so I think, you know, in, in even someone like Ilan Omar's case, I support her policies, I support her, but there needs to be a reflection of, wait a minute, this is, like, a really blue seat. I only won by three with, like, no outside money, like, what exactly like maybe my politics are not on on some ways jiving with 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 the public you know and and there there're going to be certain compromises like i thought when um you know and bernie was always good at this um 
you know, even when the, cause I remember having this debate with a friend over the, when he remember during his campaign, when he said like, well, you can't say everything uh, about Cuba is necessarily bad. And my friend was like, well, yeah, this is speaking truth to power. And I'm like, but there are voters in South Florida who this is going to be offensive to. So you can't be pure on everything. And I just think that, um, there, there just needs to be a mindset, particularly bring when a lot of, there's a lot of stuff in lefty media where there's not a, a clear um, support of of defeating Republicans. I mean, I think about people like, um, you know, Russell Brand and people who are out there who it's like can't even condemn anything that Republicans do. And that's kind of the representation of the left that's kind of out there. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Russell Brand won't condemn what Republicans do. That doesn't, I, I don't watch his show every day, but that doesn't really gel with my experience of Rush. He basically when well, basic, my last straw with him was when Roe came out, he was like, well, he's like, there's some, he's like, there's some people in blue, to paraphrase, he's like, well, there's some people in blue states who have this opinion on abortion. And there's some people in red states who have this opinion on abortion. So we all need to come together. And it's like, that's an unacceptable thing to say. If you're on the left, <laughs> like you need to be someone who is, if you're on the left, you need to be someone who's talking, maybe you have a leftist perspective, but you can't do this both sides thing with, with something like abortion, you know, just like you can't do the both sides thing with something like gay marriage, <laughs> you know? So that was, he, he's just one person, but I'm just saying that I've just heard enough about from people about how like they don't feel the left is good enough at condemning Republicans. And these are like people in my lives, like older black family members where they're like, are these people even sure about how bad Trump is? It is true that 60% of people support the right to choose. The numbers are different about whether or not people think it's on a personal basis, ethical, something they would personally do, etc. I support the right to choose for all of the reasons are pretty well understood. And I completely appreciate people very strongly object to what I'm about to say. I don't know that I would take the position that accusing everyone who does not agree with me on the level that I agree with the right to personal autonomy doesn't have a place within a broad left coalition. There are many, many, many Democrats who don't support the right to choose but they support the Democratic Party for other reasons. And I, again, this is what we're getting, trying to get to in this conversation with Cornell West. It is difficult to, you know, like I think there is a difference between acknowledging, like here, here's how I feel. If I throw up the agenda and someone wants to be a part of that agenda, even if they disagree with some aspect of it, I'm not changing. It's the, the the water analogy. Am I pouring into the, the am I pouring into the dirty bowl or is the dirty bowl pouring pouring into me? If right. they're willing to support my agenda, even if they don't support the right to choose or some other thing that I believe in, I don't feel like I need to exclude them from it. I hope that you know they are ultimately supporting the right to choose by supporting my agenda, by voting for my agenda, for supporting my candidate. I, I and. And how to go about addressing that in the context of this coalition? It's but, it's an interesting. But don't question. you think? But yeah. don't you think? To me, but to me, I guess I, I guess, and I, I'll get to. Um, don't you think though? Like, 
people in terms of who are speakers are different than voters. Because if someone's a pro-choice, if someone's just like say, oh yeah, I don't like abortion, but I want to join the coalition. That to me is a lot different than people who are like have platforms that are promoting the left. Because I guess my my fear is that the left, it, we, we can't be any everything for everybody. Like there needs to be some lines. Like if someone's, uh, if someone's a voter and they're like, oh yeah, I'm, you know, for traditional marriage, but I, I'm in the Democratic coalition. Okay. But if there's a content creator that's like that, then I, I I guess at some point it's like, okay, you're not on the left. We don't want you necessarily representing you. Because the right does a, a great job of kind of like, these are what we define as right. This is the message we need to push. We need to stay on message versus us at times. We can be so welcoming uh, in our populist project that it, at times it's like, well, what what do we stand for? Wait, Other wait, a, than- minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think that Democrats and leftists can be off message because they're not consistent about what they do believe. I think that's different from saying that they should be consistently hostile to people who don't agree on all of these prongs, many of which I want to just be clear, I think are very, very important. Personally, I believe they're very, very important, but I have to acknowledge that I, I'm not in such a strong supermajority on some of this stuff. So, for example, I've told the anecdote on this show about how during the campaign once I was with some other folks on the campaign. We went to the beauty salon. I think we're in South Carolina, a black salon. And one of the other women in the group immediately started going on about abortion and how you should vote for Bernie because he's the strongest candidate on abortion. And everybody in the room kind of blanched. And were clearly uncomfortable with this presumption that that was their issue. And I don't think it was necessarily because they don't support the right to choose. I I don't know exactly what it was, but I think it probably has something to do with the presumption that they, as black women, were loose, you know, and needed abortions. And and the other, the person was black too, you know, who was saying these things. And of course, didn't, you know, mean it in that way at all. But we, like, this is to Grace's point. You you should wait for people to tell you what they they care about because, you know, when you make, when you assume you make it as you and me. And and even but the point I'm trying to make is that even in environments where you think that people are really, really with you like that, people have very nuanced views on this stuff. I know a lot of folks really don't like Elizabeth Brunig uh, because she's Catholic and, you know, doesn't believe personally in the right to choose, although she supports, you know, the broader right. I I, I, I don't know if I w- I'm going to sit here and say I think that Liz Brunig is something that I wouldn't want to represent me. I think I would like her to represent me and my interests much better than 99 out of a hundred people that ever show up on TV. And it, it does yeah. feel, I don't know. I, I respect people but who differently, think, like, but it is weird line. to me to say, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. But don't you think, and the last thing is, but don't you think to me, to me, cause to me the line is, what is your position? Because this is how I know, like whether you're like a Batya type and, and you know, you talked to me last week about the student loan debt thing with Batya. This is how I know. Like, are you pushing back for all your criticisms of the Democratic Party? This for pundits. I'm not talking about for voters, uh, Brie. For pundits, are you pushing back against the Republican Party in addition to critiquing the neoliberalism of the Democratic Party? If the answer is no, then I'm kind of like, I don't know how we can include you in our in our like coalition. We're not going to push you out, but like, yeah, I, in terms I think of that that's right. But I, I don't know. I do. Is it really true that Russell Brand doesn't push back against the Republican Party? I mean, that just doesn't gel yeah. with what I well, understand. Well, uh, every because every I guess because every video of his is like 
about how it will be like media is awful and it will be like CNN, MSNBC, Washington Post, New York Times, and then Fox News is missing or like they lied and then it will just be Biden and Fauci and it will be like he was right and then we'll have a picture of Trump. And it's like if you're doing that 30 and 20 times and like what are you, how are you someone that is like, you know, like you should take a look at his like videos and his video titles because it's like super consistent where every time it's like they lied, it will be like Trump being right. And every time it's like, you know, the 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 politics is corrupt. It will only feature leftist politics or or liberal uh, leaders like Biden, Kamala, Fauci, all those people. I mean, again, I I know I'm not sure, but it people make this, these accusations about me. And my feeling is often that I, the audiences I'm talking to don't really need me to say Fox News is bad. I mean, do you guys need me to say Fox News is bad? Fox News is bad. It's bad. Trump is bad. I, I haven't said that today. I don't know when the last time I said that was, but I, you know, in case anybody was wondering what my views on Fox News or Trump was, is that they're quite bad. Well, you actually do it, Bree. To but, be but, fair, but you actually. <laughs> Basically, you actually criticize Republicans, but I though. often, I, I certainly don't to the extent that I talk about liberals because I feel like my job is to help people understand why they should be leftists and not liberals. As much as, frankly, more so than my job is to convince conservatives that they should be leftists. You know, and so I do, I do, and again, I'm not saying anything one way or the other because I don't. You know, I, I actually. I mean, I have liked Russell Brand a great deal as a comedian. I've, I found him to be a very intelligent interlocutor when I've seen him in interview, interview context. And I've obviously watched some of his videos as they pop up on my YouTube feed. But, you know, not in a way that would make me, you know, a credible source on whether or not he is or isn't appealing to a right-wing audience. But I also do think, to the extent that you can frame your issues in a way that you can get right-wingers to come in to what, embrace his politics, which I've always understood to be a European left, which is way much more to the left than our general liberalism. That's a good thing. Does he no longer support Medicare for all and social policies and anti-capitalism the way that he used to? Because that's that's the rest of the brand. He I doesn't remember. really talk. That's the thing, though. He doesn't really talk about that. Like, he'll talk about anti, like, um, um, pharmaceuticals but he'll talk about it from the from the lens of like the vaccine being bad which okay fine but like if that's your critique you know that then it's like it just feels like a little bit of audience capture is going on there that's all that's all i'll say about him rather than like a true leftist critique you know okay i mean that's all i wanted to say I'll, i'll check it out I mean, the thing about his titles that I've noticed that they're all so vague that who can tell what they are until you click on the video. This changes everything. It's happening now. This this is shameful, and it's a picture of both Biden and Trump. Um, thought the pandemic was bad. This is what's coming. Hang on. It was only tested on what? It's official. They lied, and it's a picture of a person with a mask and a senior cityscape, and I can't tell what's going on. <laughs> this is a fucking joke. A picture of him and George Bush. Seems like that's going to be critical of George Bush. Farmers protest go global. This is impossible to ignore. You aren't going to like this. And it's a picture of a baby being fed a spoonful of something with a poison logo on it. Like, I I truly can't tell (laughs) what some of this is. Um, Seriously, does he think we're idiots? And it's a picture of um, Dick Cheney and Donald Trump, which seems like that might be critical of them. 
So I don't know. Look, I'm not. I'm not trying to, to dodge. No, no, I, I get just, it. I get it. But but I guess my pain point, and then I'll hang up because I know callers is. I just one. I, I I think you know, like I said, the critique of the left, and two. I hope our nominee looks at some of those you know trends, you know, because even with someone like Joel Manchin, as much as we hate him. Somehow what he does gets him reelected in West Virginia. And when we ran a candidate that we ran, they didn't win. So I hope we're able to just try to connect with the medium voter um, because I do want uh, a leftist answer, whether that's Bernie or um, someone else to, to kind of challenge DeSantis or Trump in uh, 2024. But thank you for taking my call. No, I appreciate you, D. Thanks for calling in. All right, we're going back to the front of the line. Andrew, what's on your mind? My goodness, I I completely gave up. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad you stuck it out. What are you thinking about? Um. Well, I did whine in the chat, so I I don't know if that counts as sticking it out. But thank you. Uh, I, <laughs> I I had a. <laughs> well, good. Okay, never mind. I didn't do that. I I had a um a few critiques of Crystal's points on your your episode today, and then. As always, 90 thoughts about what everybody else said and what you said. Very interesting. Um, but I'll just stick with with what's the what's the move for the left? Are we going to do third party stuff? Are we? I mean, electorally, I mm-hmm. I still um, just from the the context of my own like city and region and shit that I've done for activism i'm still very much tied to like everything has to have a direct impact and not just be the incredible organization of bernie falls apart at the end of the campaign i mean Mm -hmm. to me that like my biggest um my biggest gripes with bernie are that he um gave up fighting both times when he still had a chance and also that he had a really well organized campaign and i think that that doesn't come up enough when we talk about any kind of left electoral project is like organization and the more i learn about like how morena organized themselves from literally nothing to winning power i I want to talk about that more in the american context because they didn't necessarily i mean they did have benefits from social media and um from using kind of like other otherwise existing apparatuses but they just went really strict numbers and built a political engine that works pretty well um but i guess i'll really quickly say like my big gripes with crystal were that the the fact that a third party has not um succeeded in modern american politics applies equally to uh you know a anti-establishment takeover within the dnc Mm -hmm. like you have mcgovern for the old example um, you have Wallace for the flip side of that, trying to run as a third party candidate in, uh, what was that? 48. Can't remember. Yeah. Uh, anyways, we'll, we'll go point that. being that point being that, um, that, that doesn't rule out either strategy. Um, and I don't think we should accept the argument that urgency of issues like war, climate, inflation. I don't think that that really should convince anybody to settle for, um, another try within the democratic party. If what you're settling for demonstrably can't or won't address those issues. Um, and I also don't think it's a prerequisite. The third party 
would only be like an outside pressure or propaganda based campaign and not be a legitimate run for power and office. Um, so I don't know that that was like my three major critiques. So before I just like rattle on and on, what do you think of those? And did, and I, like, I did watch the whole episode, but did I miss where you um, like kind of bit at her about that a little bit? Yeah. I, I said, I said this to crystal, like I appreciate the outside chance that a third party represents, but I also see in the Bernie example, the Nina Turner example, that doing the inside thing also fundamentally doesn't work either. So you would have more credibility talking about how a third party is a lark if you had a bat's chance in hell of making it on the Democratic Party line. And I I truly, on a personal level, that has nothing to do with how any of you guys should feel about her. I'm not, like, defending the critiques of some of her policy positions, which I have also talked to her about and disagreed with her about, you know. But on a personal level, I adore her. I think she's great. She's a real fun time she's warm and empathetic and delightful but like that has nothing to do Mm -hmm. with whether or not any of you guys should vote for her (laughs) if she were to run for for office so i'm just saying that as a caveat i i i i think that despite as much as i like her personally it seems to me obviously true that you know she's not as well positioned as bernie was and so if bernie wasn't able to do i'm not saying that like history is different and things come up and the world changes and she has her own skills that Bernie didn't have. And maybe it's not entirely clear how those will manifest in the current environment. So I would be rooting for her for sure. And you know, all of that. But if Bernie wasn't able to do it with all the advantages he had and the ability to fundraise everybody else in the field, even though he didn't take corporate dollars and with the organizing campaign that he had, and being number two in the race right up until the end. I, I just, you can't tell me that I'm the one that's being foolish for hoping for a third party that at very least can start to make its way toward a dirty break and establishing a new political party that over time can grow in strength and be a repository yeah. for political discontent and movement building. You can't tell me that that is a less useful project than someone getting a shot at the Oval that they're unlikely to actually achieve. And Crystal, you know, I take her point. She says it's important to run real campaigns, not just performative ones, so you can get real power and make real change. I think that's true. But we also have to be clear about how, what the odds are of doing it within the party as well. Not because people are bad mm-hmm. candidates or not doing their best, but because it's rigged. And we have seen this so many <laughs> times. How many more yeah. times do we have to do this? And I, I, would mean, go, I would go for it. But again, there's this question of are people going to give their hard-earned $27 to this mm-hmm. to this effort? I don't know. Yeah. Well, that's – I mean that's – no, no, no. I totally agree with, with everything you brought up. And, and that's why I said the the – I said the bit about like, this is not ruling out anything about third parties to say it's hard and hasn't been done recently. And then like, not only did Bernie not, you know, like he even, I I think people have brought this up recently. Like Elizabeth Warren even said publicly, like, yeah, Bernie was actually like by every definition cheated. That was not a real primary. And he kind of snubbed her for that. And he didn't really support like the walkout of the convention and stuff. But besides all that, like, Say he did try to push back against that. It's still not really, to me, obvious that he would have been able to get the DNC to concede his victory because they actually argued in court. Um, 
I, I heard this many times on Nico House's show that that when they were pushing in court against the fraud over the 2016 primary, the DNC basically argued, well, we're a private organization and we can pick our right. candidate, however. Right. Yep. Um, and I also think like, take, say, say that Bernie c- was able to, con- you know, force the DNC to concede his victory and then they weren't able to McGovern or India Walton him. Mm-hmm. And then he gets into office. And does some good work. Well, let's look at like FDR for a comparison. A lot of the the concessions that capital made in the 30s and 40s during the New Deal era, I mean, they basically were were they were designed to be decent enough to show the U.S. as a somewhat favorable comparison to the USSR. So there wasn't an actual revolution. And then pretty much by 1940, I want to say seven or eight when they passed the Taft-Hartley Act, they'd undone functionally uh, most of the really major power that labor had been legally granted. And then what it did was it it bolstered the Democratic Party to have people like, um, like FDR as like a poster boy while they're doing the opposite for decades. And so I think like if you if you can imagine Bernie winning either those primaries or let's just put ourselves in an alternate reality where that happened. Mm -hmm. And then we have, um, maybe we do have single payer. Um, well you look at in the UK, they've had the NHS for decades and it's being picked apart. And like, I don't know, I don't know how to weigh that. That's really difficult because when you get like pretty substantive concessions like social security or single payer healthcare or, um, you know, the, the NLRB when it wasn't a total crock of shit, like those are pretty solid. But I think if you're not, if you're not able to completely like completely clean house in the party and rebuild it, which I, I don't think that I don't see anybody, including Bernie who could do that or is even uh, signaling that they're willing to do that. Then you have, um, then you just have like complacency for years and, you're going to watch your pro, you know, the people who are really paying attention, like I would argue most of ourselves on this call are going to watch whatever we just contributed to be chipped away. And there's no, you know, there's no guaranteeing that a new, a different party would not be able, would not, would, would, would be able to resist that um, from outside political forces. But if you have a new political vehicle, it seems like it has a lot more mileage in it than if you, you know, fix the suspension on the democratic party. Yeah, I, I I completely agree, Andrew. But you know, this is the debate we've been having, and you know, I understand how you know Crystal's a different perspective, which I respect from having been closer to these kinds of campaigns and to have been in rooms that I haven't had access to. And I think her sense of you know, the political calculations of what's possible are informed by a different set of things, and you know, kind of where I'm coming from. And I don't know that. I'm right and she's wrong, obviously. And, you know, if there is a chance, like I think there's benefits, and Nick, Nick from Socialist um, uh, Revolutionary Black Network, Socialist MMA, you know, has made this point that, you know, whatever you think about electoral politics, he learned a lot from working on the Bernie 2016 campaign, made relationships, he has politics evolved, and that matters too. And so I would be supportive of, of these efforts for multiple reasons, even if, you know, 
I, you know, I, I had some skepticism about their efficacy, just like I had skepticism about Bernie's efficacy. None of us were like, oh, this is a guaranteed thing. However, there is this question of whether or not the time and energy would be better used going ahead and doing the thing of building a third party, either by running within and then doing the dirty break or just running as a third party. And I think it is a little bit frustrating that we can't even have, well, I won't say can't even because we did have, but like on many spaces on the left, there is a kind of edgy hostility about that that mirrors the kind of dismissiveness you get from centrists when you're talking about left politics. But look, I appreciate you calling in Andrew. Like a 10 second ad there. I, I think like the, the, the point about time is really important because people, even if I don't think they're being cynical, bad faith about it, when they bring up, we don't have time to build a third party. I I just don't think that's right. Because again, like, what are you going to accomplish if you don't like you might get, 10% 10% of the things. And I'll just say like, um, if, if you want, I'll send you another DM or I'll find if there, if you have like an email for bad faith, um, I could connect you if you want with a number of different people from like the state in Mexico state Morena party, or like a couple of the more like national organizers. And I think it would be just super worthwhile to just go through for everybody to see like, well, how did you guys you know, get over like ballot stuffing, like all these different super corrupt rigging that they did in the electoral system, because whether or not we do decide third party or stay again with the Democrats, I think like it is a slightly different system, but there's so many lessons and I have, uh, you know, like a hundred followers and I, I don't want to put my face on it at all, yeah. but I do think if it's you worthwhile. Just email the Gmail, the bad faith, uh, email. Mm-hmm. Uh, badfaithpodcast at gmail.com that would be really helpful I really I would appreciate that but thank you okay Andrew. well thanks I'm again gonna, for taking my call yeah thanks for calling in uh, I'm gonna go to case study I really did there's so many people in the queue and I really wanted to get through more folks but I'm gonna have to wrap at 11 what's on your mind case Hey, what's going on, Bree? Much love to you. Just want to let you know that I am not going to clip that little baby, the baby, <laughs> baby conversation you had with Slyvester. And um, by the way, there is a baby, you know, the CEO of um, Cash Money. He's a baby. So that's the third person. That's and shout out to problem. baby uh, face, baby face. Much love. Oh, <laughs> day. The rest of the babies, I got to say, I think I'm just <laughs> It's me. It's me, not the Yo, trust me, I was right on your level. I I I didn't know the difference myself. So that's why I didn't want to clip it, because then I'll just be a hypocrite. But (laughs) but um with the conversation you had, you know what I would like to see? I would like to see somebody like Matthew. I think his last name is Ho H O H that he was all over the place. He ran Mm -hmm. Green Party, you know what I'm Mm -hmm. talking about. Yeah, I would love to first of all, I think he should definitely run. For president, I think he's our new Joe Stein. He's very, very good with media, very yeah. articulate. Mm-hmm. I think he's excellent. But I, I know he would not do this in a million years. But I would love to see him run as a Democrat to mm-hmm. just to get into the debates. Mm-hmm. And then when people say, "Hey, you know, are you if you don't get the nomination, are you going to run as a third party?" He could do two things. Now, what has proven to work is what Donald Trump said, which is. I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to run as a third party. Now, that that has worked because he became president. Mm-hmm. Or he could, um, Matthew Hook can just say, hey, you got to vote for me. Otherwise, I guarantee you I will run as a Green Party candidate. And it's almost like the the um, reverse of the lesser of two evils, right? Mm-hmm. Where um, he's saying, you have to vote for me 
in the primaries to become a Democrat if you want a Democrat to win. Otherwise, I'm going to take all my progressives, third party, independent voters, and I might lose in the, you know, in the general election as a third party or I might not. But I might lose, but I guarantee the Democrat will lose. You understand what I'm saying? No, I understand what you're saying, and I like it. Look, I think that because he is someone, first of all, I just want to echo everything you said about him. I think he presents like really well and has, he's very talented and has a, in principle, most importantly. I think mm-hmm. the first primary works better than the second one just because he doesn't have the national profile, and I think the threat that he would like I agree. You know, throw an election is not quite as powerful as it. You know, when you have 30% of the vote like Bernie, then if you have 1% of the vote like Howie Hawkins, and not even the 3% that Jill Stein got. I I take your point, and I would love to see it as well. Okay. I I just want to throw that part. Happy Labor Day. Much love to my man, Day Sylvester, and everybody else in the chat. Much love to you, Bree. Have a good, happy Labor Day. Thank you, Case, and thank you for all of the work that you do. If you guys aren't following Case... And all of the clips that he pulls that feed the left media infrastructure, please do. And he also has, I believe he prefers, it's a, it's a cash app subscription rather than Venmo, but you should be supporting him because he's doing an awful lot of free labor out here for us. And we should show him some love where we can. Day. What up? What is on your mind? Uh, I feel bad because you want to wrap in a minute. And I actually had thoughts today. Like, <laughs> Okay. Let, let's see. Wrap it around. Let's hear these thoughts. Day. Okay. So. I wanted to focus on, you said, I think at the end of the episode, you said, why Marianne and what should she do? So um, I think the biggest thing that we need right now in terms of our politics is that we need a fundamental shift in our thinking and what we view as possible. And personally, I think Marianne has a skill to help the American people, like envision a world that doesn't exist yet. Mm -hmm. Um, She can help instill the faith that when we look to our left and our right and acknowledge that person is our fellow American, we can accomplish great things. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think one of her best assets is the fact that she's comfortable, like you said, she's comfortable in black spaces, elite Mm -hmm. spaces, working class spaces. And I think the fact that she's good in spiritual spaces is a plus because I feel like the evangelical right dominates the religious conversation. And we don't really have a counter narrative to that, to their form of Christianity. And I actually Mm -hmm. think that would be a big gift to us because I have tons of right-wing friends who say they vote for Republicans because they feel like they're the only people with, you know, some spiritual morality. Mm -hmm. And, but they said they would vote for Marianne for, because of her sincerity and things like that. So I was like, okay, y'all do realize her leftist policies. Um, But then I took a Mm -hmm. a task on, some policy proposals that I thought she should focus on that I wanted your opinion on? Yeah, please. Um, So my big three, because I did all of this like five minutes before the episode because I didn't realize, <laughs> um, was were infrastructure, a healthy America, and prioritizing peace. So mm-hmm. when it came to infrastructure, I felt like this should be like the central core of Marianne's second run in a way because I said, you know, I think that the American people should realize that we should have the best infrastructure in the world. I think that's something that could inspire inspire the people on the right and the left, because on the right, if you talk about China and the progression that they've made, that automatically animates that group. And I think on the left, just the idea of us doing something collectively is great. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, on a policy level, we have federal jobs guaranteed because everybody needs to work on this. So I think if you tie this project to the American spirit of unity and frame infrastructure in terms of freedom, whether that's the freedom in the sense of literally being able to travel, and I think she would have a way of letting Americans know that you actually deserve a government that ensures you have a functioning roads, bridges, and transportation. Of course, all of this is hard infrastructure, not soft infrastructure. Mm-hmm. But 
what are your thoughts on that? I guess. Love it. I think I'm, I, I feel like I'm spoiling this whole Cornell West episode, but one of the things <laughs> I asked him was like, how, how are we in this world where Mississippi has undrinkable water? And that's not even like, the top five water crises that we've had, you know what I mean? It's just like one in a long yeah. string of, of infrastructure related crises we've had in this country. And Biden just had this years long fight over infrastructure that largely failed. And he got a fraction of what he wanted passed and he's not doing an, I told you so lap right now. He should be going on a tour of red Mississippi explaining exactly why these Republican legislatures have let down the people and saying, look, this isn't about red and blue. These are citizens who live here. And this is exactly why your governor, your, your representative didn't vote for X, Y, and Z policy. We mm. had federal dollars going to this and they wouldn't support it. We need to support the people of these places. So I, I think that Marianne would be very strong making that kind of appeal. And because she is an outsider, she is very strong about saying things that the Democrats have failed on and with a kind of righteous indignation that feels very authentic. Absolutely. I, I think that would be sold very well. And I think that your points about um, spirituality are extremely important. And if the political space has a bias, we often talk about elitism, but our secularism is a yeah. different kind of blinder that we really very rarely acknowledge. And it is really, it's kind of funny to me that people think that Marianne's spirituality is a liability when I think it is in fact her greatest asset. I agree because I feel like what the left sometimes doesn't understand about people who aren't on the left is that like we're more than the policies we we fight for like we are people and people react to policies with their full humanity like mentally emotionally etc like we had a whole charge conversation about canceling ten thousand dollars of student debt and it's like it was only ten thousand but the exuberant amount of joy around that you could mm -hmm. feel it, it was palpable mm -hmm. and i think marianne understands that and knows how to direct it because mm -hmm. with, when dealing with conservatives, by nature, they tend to be more resistant to change. And being able to handle that shift in thought and attitude is honestly a skill I feel she possesses one of her best ones, while still being able to inspire liberal-leaning people and America at large to try to believe in a shared goal and a better America. I really feel like until we collectively have a goal or something we want to do analogous to like JFK and the moon, mm -hmm. it's going to be very challenging to unite us outside of something like war, like, you know, God forbid, like an attack or some or because we didn't even come together in a pandemic, let's be honest. So <laughs> the list of things are very, very, very small. Yeah. And I think she would be able to do it around things like peace, healthcare, and infrastructure because they're not really right or left issues if you frame them correctly. Yeah, 100% day. I, I completely agree. I, look, I'm interested to see how this Marianne conversation evolves, especially if, you know, she actually does throw her hat in the ring. Maybe we should get her back on the podcast to discuss a little bit of this uh, mano a mano. But thanks as always, Day. No, thank for you. Calling in. I I was feeling like I had a little bit of a second wind, but now I know I'm debating it. How about Kave? I've never seen you before. I'm inclined to call on you as well. How are you? Doing? Hey, Bray. Can you hear me? I can. I can hear you loud and clear. What's on your mind? Oh, wonderful. Um, well, I appreciate you calling on me. Yeah, um, yeah, so like I had a lot of thoughts on a lot of what other people said, but I mean, um, that might get exhausting. But but I did want to talk to you about something that I've actually wanted to, I mean, discuss with someone and you just had a kind of a, um, a topical a bad faith podcast on this. Um, and so my question is, 
like there's a lot of hay when whenever people talk uh, talk about the electoral college, it's always in negative terms. But I I don't quite understand why no one has suggested that like we don't really need to debate. Oh, do we want to vote for Bernie or do we want to vote for Marianne Williamson? Right. Um, this kind of tool, like you know, 200 years ago they didn't have ranked choice voting, but this this is you know what they could do back then. Uh, like, but there is this tool, and people could just elect, people could try to just elect electors who aren't bound to any specific candidate, and kind of force specific issues um, in the electoral college, right? And you know, you know, they say, okay, if the Democrats want Joe Biden to be president necessarily, we can have, uh, you know, Marianne Williamson uh, as the VP, and we need we need a public commitment to these four or five issues. Or, you know, the, the Democrats don't win the presidency in the Electoral College and it's got to go to Congress and God knows what happens there. Right. Like like th this kind of deal making in theory is possible, but there, there's some kind of huge taboo um, around the Electoral College. And it's just seen uh, as a kind of a recalcitrant uh, device. Yeah, well, especially now that there's, you know, all of the reporting about how Trump tried to influence the electors to steal the election, all of this stuff. I think that people have a hard time. You know, all all the liberals have right now is to fall back on procedure and, um, you know, what's the done thing to do. And, you know, I, I take your point, but, yeah, good luck, good luck with that one. So, but the, your, broader, your broader point about, you know, using leverage to extract concessions and doing some um, block voting is such an important one. And it's a little bit like banging one's head against the wall at this point to still have to make this argument after the year we've had with the margins being so slim that it was like it should have been a block voting bonanza. That's what, you know, of course, it obviously was all about. And, you know, it, it remains dispiriting. But, I, you know, I, I, completely, I completely take your broader point. So let me ask you this way. If, if Marianne Williamson was to run, for example, as a third party candidate, do you think it would help or hurt her cause to say, look, if I, if I don't ultimately get, you know, 280 whatever votes I need in the Electoral College, I'll consider, uh, you know, uh, binding or pledging some of my candidates to, to a Democratic ticket? I'm sorry. If if she doesn't, if she doesn't if, win, if if she runs as a, a third party, and, and you know people are concerned, or we're going to split oh, the vote. I see. I see. I see. Basically, right? create her own ranked choice voting system. Yeah, yeah. Well, she can. She could say, look, uh, you know, if, if if you know people are concerned that you know the vote is going to be split, look, if I get candidates. Um, if I get a majority of candidates, I'm going to be president. That's great. But if not, uh, I'm open to maybe uh, bargaining what, what the Democratic establishment as to who's going to be the president and what the agenda will be. Right. I, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's, that's an interesting question. And I got to say, I'm not quite so knowledgeable about how that works logistically. But I, I'd love to hear somebody walk, run run that through as an idea who was is more knowledgeable about it than I am. Yeah. So so my understanding is that um, the, these votes are meant to be uh, like the free choice of the electors. 
but state law kind of binds these people to vote um, specifically, or, or what people have tried to pass laws to, to, to enact this to, you know, to, to prevent, you know, elector switching, which is just kind of, it, it seems to me like a, a tool of just duopolizing uh, the political system. So I just thought that was an interesting idea. And if, you know, yeah, it definitely is an interesting idea, and I appreciate that kind of creative thinking. I'm sorry, I wish I knew a little bit more about how the Electoral College works, but I do like the idea of someone basically creating their own third-party opportunity. Although, I mean, I think part of the idea is to have the threat to actually just throw the election. And if they know that they, you know, if she expresses the ability to save it for Democrats and then at the end of the day declines to do so, that that suddenly makes all of the blame fall on her for whatever bad comes down the pike very, very squarely and not on the Democratic Party for not conceding to her demands. You know, depending on how she frames it. Uh, but I don't know that I would advertise that in advance. I do think the threat is useful. The, the threat of being a spoiler is useful in all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, look, this is this has been... I don't know. It's you guys have had some interesting thoughts about this, and it is frustrating that you don't hear more of this from political candidates. But maybe we'll put it to Marianne the next time, or to Crystal the next time she comes back on the show, or I see her on one of these other shows that we all seem to have three or four or five of. But <laughs> look, I appreciate you. I appreciate you calling in. I'm sorry for everybody in line. I know there were a lot of callers, and there still are. I just suddenly flagged. And lost all of my energy, so I'm going to call it a night. I'll wake up, and I'll see you on Rising in the morning. Thank you all, as always, keep for the listening. Faith, Thank you so much. You keep the faith, too, every single, every single one of you. And let's see if I can get the soundboard to work. <laughs> Have a good night. I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot in a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing boss scats. Wish I had a million dollars. Wish I had a million albums. Wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. I wish I was a comedian Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land I wish this well had water in it These kids are stealing all my pennies Focused on my wealth You can help me wish But I would rather wish for help It's like, it's like I wish, I wish And every time we love and it feels just like this I wish, I wish And every time we do it it feels just like this I wish, I wish And every time we love and it feels just like this it feels just like this It feels I wish I had a time machine Wish I had a better rhyming scheme Wish that I could speak to giants After climbing up a green stalk That grew from my lime bean I wish that I could spread my wings yeah. I wish that I had seven limbs yeah. That way I'd hold on to everything And laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things I wish I spoke fluent Spanish